Solidarity, number 694, Workers' Liberty 75, December 2023. The Easter Rising and Irish History, Two Souls of Irish Nationalism, An Attempt to Marxist Account, by Sean McGammer. Page 2, Dedication by Sean McGammer. I dedicate this little pamphlet to Minnie Cleary, born July 1903 at the Hands Milltown, whose cousin Patrick Mahono was executed by the Irish government during the Civil War, and to Tommy O'Mahone, Mahoney, born 1908, and no relation to the O'Mahony killed by the Irish government, whose brother John died in the British Army in late July 1916 at Luz in Belgium, and whose brother uh was crippled by an explosion while fighting in the Free State Army in the Civil War, and to their daughter Mary Norton. Minnie Cleary and Tommy O'Mahony married in 1934 while he was awaiting trial as one of 24 men prosecuted in Ennis for trade union activity. They died in Manchester in September 1974 and November 1974. Quotes by Angles to Marx, 23rd May 1856. How often have the Irish set out to achieve something and each time been crushed politically and industrially? Letter uh, by the Provisional Government of the Irish Republic to the People of Ireland. Irish men and Irish women. In the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland, through us, summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom. Having organised and trained her manhood through her secret revolutionary organisation, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and through her open military organisations, the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army have patiently perfected her discipline, having resolutely waited for the right moment to reveal itself. She now seizes that moment, and supported by her exiled children in America and by gallant allies in Europe, but relying in the first of her own strength, she strikes in full confidence of victory. We declare the right of the people of Ireland to the ownership of Ireland, and to the unfettered control of Irish destinies to be sovereign and indefensible. The long usurpation of that right by a foreign people and government has not extinguished the right, nor can it ever be extinguished except by the destruction of the Irish people. In every generation the Irish people have asserted their right to national freedom and sovereignty six times during the past 300 years. They have asserted it in arms. Standing on that fundamental right and again asserting its in arms in the face of the world, we hereby proclaim the Irish Republic as a sovereign independent state and we pledge our lives and the lives of our comrades in arms and to the cause of its freedom, of its welfare and its exaltation among the nations. The Irish Republic is entitled to and hereby claims the allegiance of every Irish man and Irish woman. The Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities to all its citizens, and declares its resolve 
to pursue the happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and of all its parts, cherishing all the children of the nation equally and oblivious of the differences carefully fostered by an alien government which have divided a minority from the majority in the past. Until our arms have brought the opportune moment for the establishment of a permanent national government representative of the whole people of Ireland and selected by the suffrages of all her men and women, the provisional government hereby constituted will administer the civil and military affairs of the Republic in trust for the people. We place the cause of the Irish Republic under the protection of the Most High God, whose blessing we invoke upon our arms, and we pray that no one who serves that cause will dishonour it by cowardice in humanity or rapine. In this supreme hour, the Irish nation must, by its valour and discipline, and by the readiness of its children to sacrifice themselves for the common good, prove itself worthy of the august destiny to which it is called. Signed by Thomas Clark, Sean Dear Marta, uh, Thomas MacDonald, uh, P. Pierce, uh, Eamon Clearkeans, James Connolly, Joseph Plunkett. Page 3. First, um, Section 1, Easter Monday, 1916. Some in the convict's dreary cell have found a living tomb, and some unseen and tended fell within the dungeon's gloom. But what care we, although they be trod by a ruffian band? God bless the clay where rest today the felons of our lands. Let cowards mock and tyrants frown, ah, little do we care. A felon's cap is the noblest crown an Irish head can wear. And every gale in Inishvale who scorns the serf's vile brands, from Lee to Boyne would gladly join the felons of our lands. By Arthur M. Forrester It is Easter Monday, 1916, 24th of April, a bank holiday, but many places of business have not closed, including the General Post Office. People are in holiday mood, thronging the centre of Dublin. Many are going to, have, going to the races at Fairy House. British Army uniforms are dotted through the crowds. Their headquarters and a large encampment of soldiers is at the Carré in Kildare. They feel no threat here, even in the middle of the Great War. The Irish Orange and Home Rule alike are solidly with Britain in the war, still vehemently against Germany, which has occupied almost all of Belgium. Like Ireland, Belgium is a small Catholic people, the German Empire, recently denounced by German socialists for atrocities in southwest Africa, where it killed maybe 80% of the Herrera people, is allied with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is trying to crush Serbia, and with the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which has killed a million or more Armenians in a gen genocide from 1915. The Irish are divided into a vast majority who see the way ahead in legal home rule and a close alliance with England, and a tiny minority which is pro-German, or rather anti-English, and because of that pro-German. All this will change radically in the next two and a half years, but not yet. This is still John Redmond's island, the island 
with 200,000 soldiers voluntarily in the British army, the island that accepts the case against Germany and Belgium and against the Austrians and Serbia. The Irish nationalist majority sees home rule as certain in some forms and as Irish liberation or something like it or the beginning of it. Quotes, no man can set bounds to the march of a nation, end quotes, as Parnell has said. Home rule for all Ireland is on the statute book, but suspended until after the war, and the presumption is of some amendments to satisfy the minority in the northeast Ulster. As Yeats would later say about the home rule in his poem on the rising Easter 1916, quotes, for England may keep faith for all that is done and said, end quotes. The Irish majority sees war not as an opportunity for Ireland to rise against Britain, as the Irish Republican Brotherhood and James Connolly do. It sees truth or more truth in the official war propaganda that that Britain is part of a police action to stop German aggression, and this is a war for small nations. Then it sees in those likely, like Connolly, who try to make excuses and explanations for Germany and Belgium, who in fact make German propaganda. It is an island that has not yet lost belief in Britain or faced the urgent prospect of conscription into the Great War. That would come. A lot of people crowding the streets are more prosperous than they are accustomed to being on separation money from husbands and sons in the army. Army. On 1st of July 1916, the Battle of the Somme will start. Some 5,500 Irish soldiers will die in it, maybe 2,000 of them orange Ulster Volunteer Force men. Many of those die on the first day of the battle. It was only there in the slaughter and as part of the British dead that the Irish could unite. Some 35,000 Irish soldiers will die in the World War. The British Army is loyal now. It's, it's Easter 1916 to a British coalition government at war. It has not always been loyal. In March 1914, there had been a mutiny against a liberal minority government kept in office by the votes of the Irish nationalists. The senior army uh, officers at their Curragh, acting in solidarity with the Unionist Party Tories and the Orangemen in Northeast Ireland, issued a proclamation telling the government that they would refuse to be sent against Ulster. The Orangemen of the North had in January 1913 organised the Ulster Volunteers to resist the setting up by London of an Irish Home Rule majority Catholic government. If the Liberal government set up Home Rule, then they said they would set, they would not obey the British government or the administration that it would set up in Dublin. The Orangists had already set up a provincial provisional government in Belfast, September 1913. It would, they said, start to act as the northern government. The the morning home rule governments took control in Dublin. It would not have enough weapons until late April 1914, but then had bought 19,000 German guns. It could count on 100,000 men to make good its threats of civil war. 
the British machine of coercion had begun disintegrating in the Liberal government's hands. Nothing was done in, re- in response to the officers who announced their unwillingness to carry out orders they did not like. The London government saw in the officers' defiance one of a number of signs which led it to new policy, the temporary partition of Ireland into green and orange segments. The Home Rulers let Prime Minister Asquith take the initiative to put partition into the Home Rule discourse. On 9th of March 1914, the government announced an amending bill. Counties and the cities of Belfast and Derry could vote to exclude themselves from Home Rule for six years. The House of Lords made it the permanent exclusion of Ulster, nine counties. Asquith dropped the bill. The Buckingham Palace Conciliation Conference of 21 to 24 July 1914 on the very eve of war failed. When war came, the Home Rule Bill became law for all of Ireland, unamended, but suspended for the duration of the war. On this Easter Monday, a military column, some dressed in green uniforms and some with Boer War slouch hats, one side pinned up, is marching from Liberty Hall, where they had assembled up one of Dublin's main thoroughfares, Sackville Street. It will be renamed O'Connell Street. They moved towards the large iconic columns that front Dublin's general post office. To their right, in the middle of the street, near the front of the GPO, stands a gigantic stone column with a statue on top, almost out of sight in the air, commemorating Horatio Nelson, the British naval hero killed at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 by Frenchmen allied to Irish Republicans. There, Britain made secure a mastery of the seas that it would hold until World War II. Nelson's Pillar is a companion piece to Nelson's Column in London. It will last another 50 years until unofficial IRA explosives demolish it in 1966, in a deed meant to commemorate the Irish nationalists of 1916. The men and women marching to the GPO in their military formation and with real guns attracted jeers from some in the crowds, but mostly indifference and contempt. Some jeer at them as Germans or pro-Germans. British propaganda will be eager to identify their rising as a German rising. The insurgents themselves have encouraged this identification with Germany. A big majority of Irish nationalists back Britain in the war. Those marching are proud and eager to identify with the enemy of of Britain, Germany. Their their proclamation of an Irish Republic will speak of gallant allies in Europe, meaning Germany and Austria and Turkey. The marching men and women stop in front of the GPO, facing it in the shadow of Nelson in his British uniform. Seemingly in charge is a small man beginning at 48 to run to fat. His hair is thinning and he has a big ragged, fierce moustache. This is James Connolly of the Irish Citizen Army, a trade union militia founded by Jim Larkin and Captain Jack White, 
during the Dublin Labour War of 1913-14. Larkin is in America, but Connolly has kept it up. Now he draws his sword, points it at the columns building and shouts, charge. The men and women, two outsiders still playing at soldiers and rebels, rush the building. As soon as they secure it, they start to expel the indignant people who had had other business there. A crowd of onlookers begins to gather. After a while, a small group of men come out of the GPO and one moves forward. Patrick Pierce, head of the small secret revolutionary party, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the Fenians, the main group in the Rising. He begins to read a large handbill. It is the proclamation of the Irish Republic. He claims that Irish freedom and independence are based not on the living generation that in fact backs the Home Rule Party and is for Britain in the war, but an island's dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood and on previous insurrections. Only the dead generations and the insurgents interpreting them matter. Only the spirits of the insurgents can judge the insurgents and they are the tiniest, tiniest minority of a minority. The pro- proclamation has nothing explicit to say about the pro- Protestant minority, or the partition of Ireland, or Home Rule. It does take votes for women for granted. The Ulster Unionist Council has promised the votes to the Orange Women. Page 4. The proclamation of the Republic is anti-British. As a moving popular song written by a Catholic monk, the foggy Jew will put it, quotes, "'Twas better to die neath the Irish sky than at Souffle or Sudel Bar, end quotes. In the rising islands past guns in hand is confronting and challenging Ireland's present. James Connolly, the small man with a moustache, has since his article of 29th of August 1914, The War on the German Nation, made propaganda for the German side, published justifications of Germans' invasion and deeds in Belgium and ignored Serbia. The handbill declaration is shocking in its meaning and sentiment to most citizens of Dublin. It is also strange in its appearance. At the Workers' Republic print shop, they ran out of type and improvised. The proclamation is printed in a mixture of type styles and sizes. 2,000 copies are printed, but the British eventually destroy most of them. The proclamation is not socialist in the sense of the class struggle socialism that Connolly has preached until the end of August 1914. It is socialistic in the sense that it asserts the primacy in its republic of the collective goods over individual rights. This is Pierce's socialism, not Connolly's. Acoustics are bad and the bystanders are not there out of special interest. There are seven signatures on the proclamation named as a provincial government. All seven of them know that by signing the Declaration of Irish Independence, they have signed their death warrants unless they win. James Connolly is Commandant General of the Dublin Garrison, the military leader of the Rising. Patrick Pierce is President of the Irish Republic. 
they are proclaiming, which is dependent on the fate of the 1,200 or 1,400 women and men who stand in arms behind that declaration near the centre of the greatest empire that the world has seen in the second city of that worldwide empire. Chapter 2. The Revolutionary Tradition The rising that erupted in Dublin on Easter Monday, 24th of April 1916, was a product of hundreds of years of English suppression of Ireland and of Catholics. It was also, more specifically, the product of an Irish nationalism that had existed through many decades and centuries and had, had different forms and embodiments. The rising marks the beginning of a sharp turn, even a reversal, of what had seemed for decades the victory of a peaceful evolutionary policy of progress with Britain's agreement over insurrectionist Irish nationalism. The Reform Act of 1884 had massively increased the electorate. Before then, rebels like the Fenians if they wanted to be quickly effective, and they did, could not have confined themselves to the electoral politics. After 1884, Irish politicians could. You cannot understand the 1916 rising and its aftermath unless you know how, by 1916, physical force nationalists were coming to supersede British parliamentary action, and how both physical force and parliamentary Irish nationalism fitted into the long and tragic story of an island that had had to live since the mid-12th century within the reality of English power and domination. Before 1916, the last great armed rebellion had been that of the United Irishmen in 1798. That was a number of almost separate events. In Antrim, it was mainly Protestant, Presbyterian, and a lot of it urban. In Wexford, one of the most anglicised areas already speaking English, it was a peasant rising, some of it led by Catholic sectarians. Their deeds included Boulevard, where United Irishmen and others fought the British and their local supporters. It also included um, Skullabog, where over a hundred local Protestants, children and women and men, were herded into a large barn, which was then set on fire, burning them alive. In Mayo, in the West, it was the Year of the French, a peasant rising that merged (coughs) with an undermanned French invasion and a republic that covered only a part of Connaught. After some success against British soldiers, the lack of French reinforcements led the French soldiers to surrender. Captured French were treated as prisoners of war. Irish peasants in the army were rebels and they were hanged. In 1803, Robert Emmett, a brother of Thomas Edis Emmett, one of the United Irish leaders, planned another uprising, but an accidental explosion in their armoury forced them to take to the streets unready. Robert Emmett, aged 25, was hanged in public in Dublin and his head cut off as the head of a, a convicted traitor. A speech he made during the trial was learned and recited by Irish nationalists all over the world for 200 years and more. 
between 1798 uh, and Robert Emmett's and the 1916 Rising, there were a number of events called Risings, as, so to speak, almost courtesy titles. William Smith O'Brien was sentenced to death for the Rising of 1848, set against the background of the famine. He was reprieved. James Connolly made fun of his Rising as nearer to comic opera than serious politics. The Fenians... The Irish Republic Brotherhood uh, Fenians was the name of its American section, which merged, emerged after the famine of 1845-49, to was a serious organisation. In 1867, they had 15,000 Fenians in the British Army. Much of their organisation was in British cities, with a big Irish population such as Liverpool. They made an effective organization in America, bringing the wealth and numbers of the Irish America into Irish affairs. The rising in 1916 was an IRB rising. The Fenians of the 1860s saw islands wasting, losing millions of people, on top of the million dead of hunger and cholera, an additional million had fled for their lives around the time of the famine. Fenians had a guiding maxim, sooner or never. There was no constitutional way forward for them. The franchise was not given to the rural Irish until 1884, but they missed their chance in 1867 when they failed to act with anything like the strength they had. The, their effect was then was nonetheless great. They frightened the British ruling class and entered the imagination of both sorts of Irish. Northern Protestants to this day call all Irish Catholics Fenians, but their rising was feeble. After that, with the land war and Parnell, a transition to Irish politics began to evolutionism and legal processes of reform. But the Fenians were not only a response to the famine, they were also a product of many centuries of history. Chapter 3. England's First Colony Ireland is referred to by some ancient Romans and by some ancient Greeks, but very little was known to them or is known to us about it. It was always on the fringe of the ancient world, never an organic part of it, never a unit within it. Like what we know as Scotland, it was traded with but never conquered by Rome. It must have had sea lands in places of some sort, but it had no towns, no places with the functions of towns until the invaded Danes from the 9th century founded the ports at Dublin, Cork, Limerick, Waterford, Wexford. The nearest it had to Gaelic towns were settlements around monasteries which had some of the functions of towns such as markets. In the west, the fall of Rome in the 5th century led to a tremendous uh, deurbanization. London itself may for a while have ceased to function as a town, but Ireland was rich in land, timber, cattle. Like ancient Greece, perhaps it had an island-wide formal language, religion, gods and demigods, an all-island mythology. Its bearers were travelling lawyers and genealogists who were the carriers of a formal Irish Gaelic tongue. 
some of these remains as a literary cast, even after the triumph of Christianity and its priests from about the second half of the 6th century. It seems probable that the scholarly refugees from the fallen empire played a part in making Irish monasteries the centres of learning in Europe that they became. In about 800 AD, when Charlemagne rules Germany and France, someone wanted to learn Greek. If someone wanted to learn Greek, he would travel not east to the extent Roman Empire by Centium, but west to the edge of the world as it would be known for Europe for 1,000 years to come to Ireland. Irish missionaries converted much... um, of now pagan Europe and much of Britain to Christianity. The effects on the plain people of Ireland from the monastic islands of culture was not great. The monasteries were an elite culture. The monastic archipelago of learning and religion probably coexisted side by side with or overlapped with the societies that threw forth marauder bands against what had been Roman European Europe. <clears throat> then came the invasions of the Norse. In Ireland they were the Danes, the first of which took place in the year seven nine five of the British of the Christian era. The Norse shallow drafts longships sailed over Ireland's many rivers to attack the rich monasteries. Later they began to colonize and build seaports and towns. In Ireland, <coughs> at that time, there were over a hundred states, or rather semi-states. The law was enforced by families, not by special bodies of armed men. Each had its king, owing allegiance to one of five provincial kings and many other kings. There was a hereditary high king, Ard Ar. What the title meant at any time depended on who held it. Brian Burrow held it um, at what was considered the decision uh, battle, the decisive battle, um, Clontarf in ten fourteen. Though Gale and Dane were both were on both sides at Clontarf, page five. Brian Burrow was a usurper in the Irish system. Succession was by any male from four generations of the noble families. There were, there was demotion from the succession and its advantages for any one of the ruling families who had not held the kingship in four generations. This meant the um, possible successors were numerous and the noble families were almost impossible to wipe out, but it meant too that the kingship was frequently in dispute. A century and a half spans the time between the Battle of Clontarf in 1014, which is declared to be the end of the Viking period and the landing of the first Norman knights in 1169, and then of Henry II in 1171. The quarrelling of Irish nobles continued in the interregnum after Clontarf and led directly to the Norman invasion. McMurrah, leader of uh, King of Leinster, 
acted badly against Aruk, prince of Briath, um, whose wife he had abducted. He got the agreements of Henry II, the Norman king of England, to recruit Norman knights to go to Ireland and to help him. The Pope Nicholas Breakspeare, Adrian IV, had already bestowed Ireland on the English king um, in 1155. The Irish church was seen as scandalous by much of the church in the rest of Europe. In Ireland, such things as marriage were not religious sacraments and secular divorce was allowed. Their enemies said this was polygamy and polyandry. The German, that the Norman strongbow, Richard de Clare, second Earl of Pembroke, landed in August 1170. Norman military technique and equipment was greatly superior and they won easy victories. There is a flavour of what the Spaniards, vastly outnumbered, but with horses and guns, did to the Incas and Aztecs they found in the America, Americas in the early 16th century. Afraid that his knights in Ireland would grow independent, Henry II soon followed after them. McMurrah was an elderly ruffian who died soon, May 1171. His daughter, Oifa Eva, had married Strongbow. Strongbow now became king of Leinster, uh, McMurray's chosen heir. That made Ireland part of the of an empire almost forgotten today, the Angevin Empire, covering England, Normandy, Anjou, Aquitaine, and more. Its language was French. It took 300 years of the melding of Normand and Anglo-Saxon to make them English and to make English, not Norman French, the language of England's courts. From the mid-12th century, Norman feudal invasion to roughly the middle, the mid-16th century, which saw a new policy of consuming Ireland. Norman Ireland evolved as England did, following behind and came to be English Ireland and English early capitalist Ireland. At first, there was vigorous Norman invasion of Gaelic Ireland from a base fluctuating around Dublin, known as um, the Pale. Norman uh, overlords were set up over most of the, the island. Typically, that took the form of, an, of Irish chiefs and kings accepting Norman overlords and paying them feudal homage that's overlaid and subordinated to itself the existing Irish system of exploitation of the common people by the Irish king and Irish chiefs and warlords. In the century and a half between the Danish defeat at Clontarf in 1014 and the Norman invasion, there had been a vigorous and effective imperialising Ardri um, Tullo McMorroconnor King of Connaught. The tendency was towards something like an effective Irish system of succession. But Tullo died in 1156 and his successor was his son, Rory O'Connor, who accepted Henry II's overlordship in the Treaty of Windsor in 1175. 
he was the last crown's ards re. Irish chiefs were directly or indirectly liegemen of the King of England, kings of England and their feudatories. There was a Gaelic revival in the 14th century which can be seen ethically as part of Irish responses to Norman English rule or else from its social effect. The domination of the country over the towns. In 1315 there was a powerful Scottish invasion which had some Gaelic support and was seen as a catastrophe by the Norman Irish towns and most of the monasteries. The working people of Trogheda turned out against them. In England, the open warfare of the War of the Roses lasted about 30 years, 1455 to 85, and devastated the nobility. In Ireland, such interruption of succession were repeated over many hundreds of years, though most likely were less destructive than the wars of the Roses. The tendency was for, for chieftains of Norman origin to meld with Gaels by marriage and to adopt customs fitting the country and Gaelic law, which, for example, excluded women from the succession. The overall English states intervened to stop and undo the Norman, English and Irish melding as the Anglo-Saxons and Normans had in England by the end of the 14th century. For instance, the Statutes of Kilkenny in 1366 forbade intermarriage between the native Irish and native English, compelled English colonists to speak English, required that the English in Ireland be governed by English common law, dress and custom, instead of the Irish Brehon law, and mandated the separation of the Irish and English Catholic churches. This was mainly to stop the Norman English being absorbed and losing their identity to Gaelic Ireland. But the identities were preserved, and the Gaels were the Irish enemy, the mere Irish. Internecine war was the norm, and the Norman Gaelic feudal chiefs merged Norman feudal customs with, for example, the Gaelic custom of coin and livery, the free quartering of the soldiers in, on their tenants. Quartering soldiers on dissidents would be called uh, dragooning in France in the 17th century and was then imposed as an effect of coercion on Protestants and Jews to convert to Catholicism. The English and the English state in Ireland and the Church always ex exercised a predatory, hostile rule, varying in degree and type from time to time and from case to case. The view that the Lords Irish or Norman Irish ever represented the Irish common people or represented them more than the English lords, is nationalist and Gaelic fantasy and a misconstruing of history. A hostile state. Ireland's Norman and English people too were held in the grip, loose or tight, of a hostile state that intervened when it could or felt it needed to, to again divide invaders and their descendants from ancient Gaels and to block as they could by Gaelicising 
of the Normans or English. People did know themselves as Gaels, Normans, Anglo-Saxons, etc. At the beginning of the 15th century, some of the north of Ireland, uh, some in the north of Ireland, wrote to the Pope complaining about discrimination against them as Irish. These were excommunicated. But in general, there was no sense of national identity such as developing afterward, developed afterwards and no sense of a fundamental religious divide until late in the 16th century um, through, though, though there were two distinct Catholic churches in Ireland, a native Gaelic church and an English Catholic church. Wars of genocide, one aim in which was to kill as many Irish as possible, men, women and children, for instance, about it, bounty was paid for Irish heads, were fought in Munster, late 1570s and 1580s, and in Ulster, the 1590s and until uh, 1603. The Gaelic leader in Ulster, Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone, had been on the English side in the Munster War, which for the first time raised the notion uh, also that the Irish championed Catholicism against the heretics of Elizabeth. That note would come to predominate. The sour joke here is that at the time of the Norman Engl English invasion and before it and afterwards, the church had been foremost in denouncing Gaelic islands and the Gaelic church in Ireland, accusing the uh, Irish of polygamy and polyandry. The bishops had been foremost in advocating invasion. In response to Elizabeth from about 1570 and to Jesuit missionaries, the Irish became champions of the Pope and his Catholicism against the heretic Elizabeth. When serfdom in Ireland was formally abolished in 1605, it was never formally abolished in England. The abolition was decreed by the English absolutely, absolute monarchy to strike at Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone. He was, to the English, owner of vast tracts of land, which to his tenants were tribe lands. The bourgeoisie started not by coming to power, but by sharing power with the lords of the land, and that by way of an absolute monarchy, raising the monarch above everything else. The monarchy was raised above society, and the lower-level rulers in a way that it never had been before. Henry VIII, uh, Henry VII, who won the crown at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485 at the end of the Wars of the Roses, was the first of the English absolute monarchs. Many of the nobility had been killed off in the Wars of the Roses. Henry subordinated the nobility and took an unprecedented absolute power to himself, and not only in England. Gerald um, Fitzgerald, the Earl of Kildare, had ruled Ireland for England and his family, and he was sometimes called an uncrowned king of Ireland. It was the nearest Ireland came to the emergence of an organic historical ruler, and the real melting of uh, Norman and Scale, page uh, 6. 
He was on the Yorkists' losing side in the war, Wars of the Roses, but at first England's absolute monarchy dared not act against him, even though Dublin continued after Bosworth to be an open centre of Yorkism. It was only the second absolute monarch, Henry VIII, 1509 to uh, 1547, who felt strong enough to cut down the Fitzgeralds, and he did. But something far more important changed in the relationship between England and Ireland around that time. England began to consume Ireland with a new economic intensity. To Ireland, England had always at best been a semi-hostile power, insisting, as we have seen in the separation in Ireland of Anglo-Norman and the mere Irish or the Irish enemy. In the mid-Tudor period, people out to get rich reflected on the fact that England did not, like Spain and Portugal, have gold and silver to rob in South America. But England had Ireland, and Ireland had tremendous wealth in good land, vast forests, uncleared land, and herds of cattle unexploited. And Ireland was relatively close and at England's mercy. Engels, in a letter to Marx, 23rd of May, 1856, would call Ireland's uh, uh, England's first colony, and it was. The English robbery of Ireland was the main basis of England's first accumulation of capital. Using policies that were soon used in England's America, to which Henry VII had had their foresight to lay claim, the English crown began to clear and plant to, to depopulate and repopulate Ireland. Chapter 4. Via Dolorosa. In the 1640s, in, in the English bourgeois revolution, came the Confederation of Kilkenny of the Irish and the Old English Catholics, 1642, and um, Oliver Cromwell. The English Revolution took the form of civil war in which Parliament established its supremacy over the absolutist king. When a king was restored in 1660, it was the will of Parliament, though it was the supplementary revolution of 1688 which codified that, and it was then that things like habeas corpus, an end to pre-publication censorship, etc., were established. But for Irish people, there is no evading the fact that the English bourgeoisie revolution was led by Oliver Cromwell, whose new model army was also a sort of party, ideologically schooled and disciplined. The source um, along the revolution of 1688, of the ideas of the American Revolution, of the French Revolution, of the United Irishmen, and of later Irish Republicanism. There is also no evading that in Ireland, which he invaded in 1649, Cromwell was a genocide butcher and an enslaver. Uh, it was a bit like soldiers who had fought in Lincoln's anti-slavery army in American Second Revolution, the Civil War, and then went west and helped conquer, murder, cow, and make, make captive the Amerindians. Whether English Marxists like it or not, that was part of their bourgeois revolution. And whether Irish Marxists like it or not, 
That was one part of the great period of bourgeois enlightenment in history upon which achievement socialists aimed to build socialism. In 1641, a year before the English Civil War started, rebellion broke out in Ireland. In the north, it was a rising that drove out the Protestants who had settled there <clears throat> in the previous 30 years and before. Northeast Ireland and parts of Scotland had been connected for many centuries on and off. The earls of Tyrone and Tyrconnell had fled to Spain. Um, in 1607. Ulster, like the rest of Ireland at different times, was planted. Now those planted were of a different religion from the Irish and what were called the Old English in Ireland. They were Anglicans, members of the um, official church and dissenters. The areas of future Protestant strength and trim and down were not planted by the government but rather by private companies. Donegal, Londonderry, Tyrone, Fermanagh, Cavan and Tamar were planted by the government. That was the plantation of Ulster, but migration to there was organised by English and Scottish merchants. Often the settlers were driven out and treated badly, some were killed. A version of the story of the killing and driving out of the settlers, but greatly exaggerated, became thereafter a big force in Protestant propaganda and self-justification. In fact, maybe 2,000 died. In the official version, more settlers died at the hands of the Redskin, like Irish, than there were Protestants in all Ireland. The frightfulness was exaggerated and used for ever after to justify enormously greater frightfulness against the Irish. It would be a well-known pattern in many countries over the next 500 years. Much of Ireland revolted and English Ireland, <coughs> and England was preoccupied through the 1640s. The Irish organised their own state, the Confederation of Kilkenny, from 1642. <coughs> it was part of Catholic Europe, allied with Spain, France and the Pope. The Confederation's greatest military commander, Owen Roe McNeill had served Spain in the wars in the Netherlands. Its centre for a time became Cardinal Runicini, the Papal Nuncio. It had contact with the Irish Royalists. The parliamentary side, Cromwell's, raised money on Irish land that had yet to be reconquered. The king was defeated and in January 1649 beheaded in London. It was a blow for republicanism that would echo down the decades to be repeated in Paris in 1793. Then Cromwell turned his attention on Ireland and became Cromwell the Genocide. A small section of Cromwell's new model army refused to go to conquer Ireland with Cromwell, but that had no impact on what happened. Cromwell went to Ireland <coughs> in August 1649 and there he butchered and murdered, confiscated the land, and enslaved the people. The new model army was vastly superior and was soon in military control. Criticism of Cromwell in Ireland uh, tends to focus on Drogheda, which was 
besieged and sacked and a lot of the people massacred. The same things happened in Wexford, which resisted too, was besieged and massacred. It was terrible, but commonplace in that time. The cities which resisted were besieged, and when they fell, they were pillaged and their defenders and people massacred. The atrocities in Drogheda and Wexford were not especially horrible or uncommon in warfare of that age. Many of those slaughtered in Drogheda and Wexford were English royalists, but the country was reduced militarily. Its people were then at the mercy on, on the Cromwellians. A large number of them were involuntarily sent under indenture to the West Indies, that is, they were enslaved and deported. They were in Ireland forbidden to be Catholics. The religion of the whole people was outlawed. A whole people was outlawed. Cromwell was tolerant of other Protestants' opinion, but not at all of, of Catholicism. There was still the era of the wars of religion. The Thirty Years' War of 1618-48, which ruined Germany for generations, ended only a year before Cromwell came to Ireland. Catholicism was superstition and idolatry. It was an international organisation that told its people what to do. It was militant and suppressive against Protestants. It was assertive for what its priests had forever a thousand years passed off as Christianity and which militant Protestants like Cromwell were trying to banish. The Mass was the central ceremony of Catholic worship. To Cromwell it was idolatry and superstition. The Spanish Inquisition played a big role in European Catholic life and in Protestant dreads. So did the great massacre of Protestants in Paris on St. Bartholomew's Day in 1572, page 7. So from 1641 onwards, with the stories and fantastic figures from islands of Catholic Catholic persecution of Protestants in Ireland. Like the war in the 20th century against the Stalinist International, the Protestants' war against the Catholic Church were against a real force, but the persecution they inspired was out of proportion, uncontrolled, and some of it used the same methods they denounced in the enemy. Most of Europe was on the way to the religious indifference of the 18th century, but this was also still the time of the threat of torture put on Galileo Galilei in Rome in 1833 to vow that the sun moved around the earth, though he knew better. In Ireland, a whole people was persecuted and robbed and conquered and kidnapped. Its very right to exist at all was denied. In the name of the people of England, of the English People's Party of Cromwell, and the Irish Protestants had their own story of their massacres by Catholics and their escapes. Quotes by Marx. By engaging in the conquest of Ireland, Cromwell threw the English Republic out of the window, thence the Irish mistrusts of the English People's Party. End quotes. The victorious Cromwellian uh, Puritans told all the Irish to go to Hell or Connaught, Connaught and Clare to be exact, and they had personal gain in 
few when in Ireland they were militant Protestants. An English military man complained that there he couldn't find a tree to hang a man or water to drown him. All the Irish were at first told to go, but they found they couldn't get replacements for the labouring Irish and therefore needed them. Protestant writings in the 16th century tend to distinguish between the working Irish and the swordsmen, who were said to be the cause of all troubles and all resistance. Under Cromwell, the first political union of the two islands took place. It would be reversed until the 1660 restoration of the monarchy. Two and a half million acres of Irish land was confiscated. The Cromwellian soldiers were given land in lieu of wages. They had a bitter self-justification for killing Catholic children. Nitz makes, will make lice, according to the great historian Leakey. But to them, Ireland was alien uh, frontier territory. English women were very scarce there, so who would the Cromwellian soldiers and settlers mate with? They took the only wives that were and, and married Catholic Irish schools, and many of their children were raised as Catholics by their Irish mothers. Catholic Ireland was subjugated, but not assimilated. Page 7. Chapter 6. The Evolution of Evolutionary Politics Speaking in Ennis in September 1880, the Irish nationalist MP Charles Stuart Parnell urged the farmers to use the weapon of shunning, which became known after its first target, a Mayo land agent named Boycott, as boycotting. The Land League was a sort of agrarian trade union, started by Michael Devitt during a semi-famine in Mayo in 1879 and was allied with Parnellism in Parliament. The peasants and the land were made to be synonymous. The tenants' farmers' objective in the battle on the land was that they should become owners of the land, surrogates, so to speak, of the Irish people. The land war that raged across Ireland was a revolutionary class war backed by an aggressive parliamentary party. The IRB eventually backed this new departure. All over Ireland, farmers resisted eviction and boycotted those who took evictees' farms. They rejected what they considered unfair rents and paid what they thought fair into a fund from which the landlords could collect when they saw sense, land league sense. The Irish farmers challenged the power of the owners in virtually everything. Various parts of Ireland were proclaimed, turned over to police military rule. On the land, it, <coughs> it was something like the situation that would later be called dual power. Parnell was arrested and lodged in Kilmenham jail. The mighty British government went to Parnell and agreed the Kilmenham Treaty of 1882 to limit the land war. The Reform Act of 1884 enfranchised many farmers. The first election under the new rules in 1885 gave the Irish party of Parnell 63 seats, a majority in Ireland. It converted Prime Minister Gladstone to Home Rule. 
once the Liberal Party came out for Home Rule in 1885-86, to the Home Rule Party was inevitably attached to the Liberals. They could never otherwise hope for a majority in the Commons, and they began to focus on getting that majority once one of the British Party's Liberals came out for Home Rule. It was a corrupting influence. Instead of seeking some accommodation with the other Irish, they, they looked to the Liberals to coerce them. It was similar with the Irish Unionists and the Tories. Even under the Tories, however, in 1886-92 to and 1895-1905, to British governments had now been convinced of the need for reforms to pacify Ireland and world market conditions in the late 19th century and early 20th century made the landowners amenable to state-sponsored schemes for the tenants to buy the land. There was an epoch of reform with zigzags and disruptions, of course. Of course, The basic two trends. Parnell was an autocrat, but one with militant instincts prepared to cooperate with the Land League to compel the Liberals to give by fear what they would not give for better reasons. In 1889, one of the Irish party, O'Shea, an MP, sued his wife, Catherine O'Shea, for divorce. Parnell and Catherine O'Shea were revealed to have been living together for ten years in Brighton. It had not been a secret. The leader of the radical wing of the Liberal Unionists, who were in the process of fusing with the Tories in Ireland, um, Joseph Chamberlain, was understood to be behind O'Shea's belated divorce action. It was a deliberate attack, an attempt to destroy Parnell and thus to weaken the Irish party and lessen the pressure on the Liberals in Parliament. Gladstone told the Home Rule Party that the nonconformist Liberals would not stand for it. If Parnell continued as Irish party leader, it would mean a breach with the Liberal alliance. Parnell should retire, perhaps only for a while. Parnell's enemies in the Irish party made his resignation their cause. Parnell um, had made a special place for the Catholic Church in the party. Any priest had an automatic vote. The hierarchy, too, came out um, against Parnell. That was decisive. The issue became the independence of the Irish party. Parnell, the autocrat, proclaimed himself master of the party and was told by Tim Healy, MP, that the real question was, who is the mistress of the party? The anti-Parnellites were of different sorts. The radical Michael Devitt, outraged that Parnell should put his own interests above Ireland's leaguers, with such as Tim Healy, who owed his prominence to serving Parnell. The majority was led by John Dillon, the Parnellites by John Redmond. The Irish party split in 1890, and that split lasted to the end of the century when they reunited with John Redmond as leader and John Dillon, leader of the anti-Parnellites, um, considered to have the most authority. Class in the redistribution of the land. <coughs> Leading a campaign for the tenant farmers, Parnell had appealed to them to be kind to your labourers. Against peasant avarice, he might as well have asked the sea to stop advancing on the shore. 
The changes in this revolution from above substituted smaller-scale landlordism for the large-scale landlordism it replaced. In this, it was a class change inside a national revolution from above. Some in the Irish party, such as John Dillon, were afraid that the reform, the land reforms would diminish feeling for home rule. Nevertheless, the Irish party had made the cause of the tenant farmer then the landowning farmer as that, that class grew, the cause of Ireland. James Connolly, it is clear from his writing, aspired to make the working class cause into the Irish cause as the tenant farmers fighting the landlords had made their cause islands, but he never could. Those who uh, said that, that there could be a reconquest of Ireland only if the lands were nationalised represented a different class, the people of no property, the proletariat. But the proletariat were never central, ex- um, except in North East Ireland, where most of them were unionists, not nationalists. Land reform and Karl Marx. Land reform meant uh, the British government financing mortgages so that the existing tenant farmers could take the land as their private property. The founder of the Land League, Michael Devitt, believed in not only the tenants um, but all the Irish people owning all the land by nationalisation and renting land to tenants. So did James Connolly's Irish Socialist Republic Party. No less than Karl Marx had written in 1867 that Home Rule would unleash a revolution on the land in Ireland where the landlords were sometimes the same people as the landlords in Britain, against whom there was still a lot of agitation and ill feeling. Quotes, The English workers must make the repeal of the Union, in short, the affair of 1783, but in a more democratic form and adapting to the conditions of the present time, um, uh, an article of their pronunciamento. What the English, what, what the Irish need is one self-government and independence from uh, from England to an agra- agrarian re- revolution. With the best intentions in the world, the English cannot accomplish this for them, but they can give them the legal means of accomplishing it for themselves. In quotes. In fact, yes, the English could accom- accomplish that and did. Marx died in March 1883. In fact, the land revolution was a revolution from above by the English and some of the Irish ruling class in Ireland. Many of them saw it as an alternative to revolution from below. It was also profitable to the landlords as grain and frozen meat from around the world made British and Irish farming less lucrative. The land revolution from above was in fact nearly uh, complete when the Third Home Bill of 1912 came on the heels of the English constitutional crisis of 1909 to, to 10 and its bitterness. Reform and killing home rule with kindness. In the United Kingdom, Ireland was now a voluntary part waiting for the Liberals to force through home rule or for an inevitable conversion of all Britain to home rule. But the years of waiting after the liberal conversion to 
um, Home Rule in 1885 to 86 had also been years of reform, serious reform, at the heart of which was land redistribution. The Tories had committed themselves to suppress agitation on the land and to kill Home Rule, but to do it with kindness by removing the diluting or diluting the causes of discontent. The great change was the revolution on the land. It had, if it be meaningful to talk of an um, Irish bourgeois revolution in a part of the central state of British Empire, this was it. The single major land transfer was the Winterman Land Act of 1903, prepared by a landlord and tenant farmer conference the year before. Page 9. The creation of Irish local government in 1898 was the second most important change. The Liberals took office again at the start of 1906 when they won an election with a landslide. Imperialist rivalry was an almost united Germany and a growing German navy would now be the most consequential pressure on British governments leading up to the Great War of 1914. It was then that the Irish opponents of Home Rule, backed by the Tory Unionist Party in Britain, brought the gun back into Irish politics. In the years from 1906 and then from 1910, when the Liberal government came to be dependent on the Irish votes in the Commons, the Home Rule Irish had expected self-government. When the UVF and the Black North organised to stop Home Rule, the rest of Ireland organised to defend the British government and the Home Rule Party. Britain's Liberal Revolution of 1909-11 and Ireland. First, Britain had to go through a profound revolution, the so-named constitutional crisis. Britain had not yet a parliamentary democracy, was not yet a parliamentary democracy. Britain became a parliamentary democracy, was no small thing. The House of the Lords, the unelected House of Lords, had the power of absolute veto over the elected chamber, the Royal House of Commons. A Home Rule Bill of 1893 passed the Commons but was vetoed by the Lords. In January 1906, the Liberals won an overall majority in Parliament. Though Irish Home Rule remains Liberal policy in principle, the government was not interested in having a Home Rule Bill. In 1907, they brought in an Irish Council Bill calling for a part-elected Irish Council with very limited financial and administrative powers, mostly over education, in which the Catholic Church claimed and had a monopoly among Catholics. It was near enough to Home Rule to provoke the Orangeists and the Tories, and too far from Home Rule to satisfy even the mild Home Rulers. The Liberals dropped it. Then they led a revolution in in Britain, backed by the Irish Home Rule Party in the House of Commons. In 1909, the Liberal government made a start on the gov- on the modern welfare state in its budget, with such things as an old aged pension, ten shillings a week. The Lords had an absolute veto over the Commons, but the convention was that they would never use it on money bills, including budgets. The Lords vetoed the 1909 budget. 
the Liberals saw in this the challenge to elected governments that it was and fought two new general elections in January 1910 and December 1910 to establish the power of the elected chamber, the House of Commons, and the absolute power of the and end the absolute power of the unelected House of Lords. Faced with the King's agreements with the government to dilute their caste, the Lords backed down and accepted a two-year delaying power instead of the absolute veto. This was a pr- profound redistribution of power from the hereditary aristocracy to the electorate. Other events near it in time overshadowed it as an event in history, but the Liberal Revolution was still as important as, or more so than, the first Reform Act of 1832, which enfranchised the middle class and the relatively new unenfranchised towns like Manchester and Birmingham. It made Britain for the first time a parliamentary democracy. The government came out of the struggle to remove the power of the Lords and the elections of 1910 without a majority in the Commons. They were able to form a government only with the support of the 80-odd Irish nationalists' votes in the House of Commons. As a bargain to keeping those votes, the government brought in the Third Home Rule Bill in 1912. The anti-home rule forces, which included the Tory party, now had no aristocratic house to fall back on against the commons. Third Home Rule Bill. The Tory opposition was not slow to point out that this was a naked bargain and a cynical one, with continued governments by now minority liberals as its main objective. The Tories and their allies raised the cry, no home rule without a new general election. That is, the whole UK would be the judge of Ireland's cause. The Tories expected to win such an election and the Liberals expected to lose it. But Prime Minister Asquith had the Commons vote, of course, unless the Irish MPs were to be considered aliens. The Tories and Orangists asked such awkward questions as, why is the territory of Ireland the unit? prefiguring one answer, Home Rule, and not the territory of the whole United Kingdom, which prefigures the other union. The Orange people looked to the UK majority for refuge against the Catholic majority in Ireland. Extra-parliamentary action was now their alternative to Parliament, where they were in the minority. Unavoidably, the, t- the Irish were seen as outsiders, as not a legitimate and equal part of the body politic in which they were forced to be a part. That played its part in the early undermining of the Home Rule Bill. Always since the first Home Rule Bill in 1886, the assumption had been that any constitutional change for Ireland would be achieved only by one British side coercing its Irish opponents. The Liberals would coerce the Orangists, or the British Tories would coerce the Nationalists against Home Rule. One unreal pseudo-policy was to pretend that the Orangists were only bluffing. At first the policy was to force them, expecting that they would soon collapse. But they were not bluffing. They got 19,000 guns from from Germany on the eve of the World War and formed a formidable army able to do what they threatened, civil war. The Commons was now sovereign, 
the third Home Rule Bill was made an extra parliamentary issue and it was especially embittered. The Home Rule Party would give way. They suggested a temporary six-year partition to Asquith and proposed that he suggest it publicly, which he did in March 1914. The Liberal government would begin to substitute for all Ireland's home rule with coercion, a search for policy that took account of the Irish opposition to home rule, in fact some variation of partition. The question of what exactly what's variant became the dominant question. Four, six, nine counties of Ulster. There were nine counties in historic Ulster, all divided by poor law union areas or parliamentary constituencies. What of the city boroughs of Belfast and Derry, which in the March 1914 partition proposal would be able to vote themselves into or out of home rule? In the event, after a new failed attempt at six counties by agreement in summer 1916 and a failed Irish convention in 1917 uh, to 18, a British coalition government and the Orangists of the North would, in 1920, impose a version of partition that was very artificial in its opportune appointments. It created a second artificial Irish minority, the Six County Catholics, page 10, who were a bigger percentage of the Six Counties population than were the um, uh, Protestants in the whole of the Isle of Ireland, and it created a separate Protestant statelet, statelet with its own parliament rather than having Northern Ireland directly under British Parliament, as all the previous partition schemes has envisaged. The Liberals' 1912 uh, proposal to treat Home Rule without tackling the Northern minority, without even defining that issue, had been overcast by the British political revolution and its aftermath. Now it was central and in a political atmosphere more heated than ever since that around the Reform Bill of 1832. In September 1912, 470,000 people in Belfast signed a covenant to resist home rule in arms if needs be. In September 1913, a provisional government was set up in Belfast, pledged to resist a Home Rule government in Dublin, should London legislation impose one, um, as it was due to two years after, the nine, after 1912. The opposition either submitted to Westminster, something they were not yet in the habit of doing, or they went outside of Parliament. They went outside. In January 1913, they organised an army which marched and drilled and camped and which would, on the verge of the Great War, arm itself from Germany. On resisting home rule, they were basically not bluffing. But on one level, they were indeed bluffing. The foremost Orange leader, a Dublin lawyer, Sir Edward Carson, and most of other Orange leaders were not partitionists. When there were four partitions uh, proposals, it was to oppose and obstruct a home rule policy for any parts of Ireland. Their purpose in talking and organising an Ulster provisional government was to stop any parts of Ireland getting any form of home rule. 
Carson and his uh, friends could hardly go so far as they had and then climbed down. But they received an um, accommodating set of responses from British leaders and from some of them an openly favourable partisan response. The ancient upper-class bias against Irish Catholics showed itself still there. Part of the British ruling class showed openly and clearly the anti-Irish bias. The too slow evolution of Ireland via reforms, including Mao's home rule, would be sidetracked by the return of the gun to Irish politics. First, the Northern Unionists brought the gun back. Then the Home Rule Nationalists responded to them. By the years before 1914, many Irish nationalists believed there could never be a decisive Irish military advantage. Anyway, since 1884, mass suffrage for the Irish farmers, the ongoing redivision of the land amongst the tenant farmers, the county uh, self-government from 1898, the steady movement, or so it's long seemed, towards home rule and even the English Tory alternatives to home rule, killing it with all kindness, the Tories brought in the most important land reform in 1903, all seemed to point to a decisive answer against violence in Irish politics. Ireland had been transformed from above in the 30 to 40 years before 1916. Then the Irish Orange and British Tories brought the gun centre stage again as a force in Irish politics against the 1912 Home Rule Bill amidst a UK constitutional crisis. The formation of the Ulster Volunteer Force in January 1913 and then the Irish Volunteers in November 1913 shifted the balance, though by no means all at once. In the Home Rule crisis, Immediately before the war, the Irish labour movement had adopted itself to the prospect of living with Home Rule under a Redmond government in Dublin and sought to build an Irish Labour Party to oppose Redmond on social issues. Its leaders, James Connolly, for instance, appealed to the British Labour Party to insist that the Home Rule Bill should stipulate pro-Labour measures for Ireland, such as payments for MPs, introduced in the British Parliament in 1911. It allowed people without private incomes to become MPs and was a very important democratic message. In um, early 1914, the Home Rule Party leaders responded to the Orange Tory revolt by coming to favour temporary partition, which they wanted to Liberal uh, Prime Minister Asquith to propose for political reasons. Connolly's response uh, in forward 14 March 1914 uh, indicted the carnival of reaction on both sides of the border that would allow partition um, is is famous and famous because the indictment was true. Connolly's alternatives to partition around that time are much less noticed. Sometimes he wrote that he, quote, would much rather see the Home Rule bill defeated then see it carried with Ulster or any part of the Ulster left out, end quotes. That is, that the status quo union with Britain was better than home rule with partition, 11th of April 1914. Sometimes he claimed the unionists were bluffing. He wrote about the, quotes, wooden guns of Ulster, 
in quotes, um, 18th of April 1914, only days before the UVF uh, landed and distributed 19,000 real guns. And sometimes he advocated the British government, quotes, use its armed forces to make all, to make an ascendary clique beaten at the polls, recognize the machinery of the law, end quotes, 13th of, uh, 30th of May 1914. The Irish labour movement, in which Connolly was leading, was a leading figure, um, wanted pure home rule, no accommodation to orange objections that home rule would be Rome rule. The movement offered no deeds or words to reconcile the northern Irish opponents of home rule. That meant British coercion. It could mean nothing else. That was the policy of the labour movement against partition. The movement was not only against England and the Home Rule Party against which it competed in nationalism, but also against the northern opponents of 32-county Home Rule and um, any concessions to them. By 1914, then, Ireland faced high communal mobilisation. The Protestants in the northeast had armed against Home Rule. Catholics in the South had taken up arms to defend Home Rule. The legal evolutionary path to Home Rule seemed not definitely blocked, but doubtful. The Labour movement was depleted after the Great Dublin Labour War of 1913-14, and it lacked a working class or democratic policy to address the impasses of the competing communal mobilisations. Page 11, uh, Chapter 7, The Road to the Rising. Eon McNeil, who was a professor and expert in ancient Ireland, published an article, The North Began, 1st of November 1913, proposing the form formation of a militia in imitation of the anti-home rule Ulster Volunteer Force, whose rival it would become. Soon afterwards, MacNeil agreed to chair a committee to start it. The Irish Republican Brotherhood, IRB, secretly got behind him and steered the Irish volunteer movement. Almost overnight, it swept Catholic and nationalist Ireland. People everywhere organised as soldiers, marched and drilled, many with wooden pretend guns and some even with pikes, the easily made weapon of the nationalist Irish in 1798. Many um, acquired volunteer uniforms. Soon Ireland had two militias and Professor McNeil found himself the head of a national organisation. The original Irish volunteers had been organised in the early 1780s um, and tolerated in the expectation of an American invasion that never came. Protestants only. In 1782, it would win legislative self-rule for Ireland's colonial parliament, which would last for 17 years until the Act of Union. It was well reputed as friendly to Catholics and backed by the Catholics, um, forbidden themselves to carry guns, wear uniforms, parade and drill. Its convention was held in Tungannon. Quote, the Church of Dungannon is full to the door, and sabre and spur 
clash at times on the floor, while Helmut and Shecko are ranged all along, yet no book of devotion is seen in the throng. In the front of the altar no minister stands, but the crimson-clad chief of these warrior bands. By Thomas Davis With that precedent, Patrick Peirce, who was or would soon be head centre of the underground's IRB, at first welcomes the UVF as representing guns in Irish hands, whatever the politics. The Home Rule Party of John Redmond and John Dillon demanded an immediate majority for their party in the leading committee of the Irish Volunteers, otherwise they would start an organisation of their own. That was a credible threat. They would start a militia that would reduce um, the original Irish Volunteers to a small rump. It was not unreasonable even that the volunteers should be led by the parliamentary leaders elected by the Irish nationalists rather than by our IRB people who had got in first. Redmond got his majority. The IRB divided on it. John Tavoy in the USA held that they should not have given away to Redmond and blamed those who had, such as Bulmer Hobson, then a central IRB leader. Less than a year later, when the war came, the Irish Volunteers split into the Home Rule Nationalists called the National Volunteers and a small group with the IRB Nationalists who kept the name Irish Volunteers. In terms of the war, the Volunteers split into pro-German and pro-British. The IRB had long been committed to backing Germany in the war. Many saw coming and the Citizens' Army went with them. Redmond and those who became the National Volunteers backed Britain. Redmond had made good his previous threat and reduced the Irish Volunteers to a small IRB front. The processes of process of splitting and selecting had by September 1914, a month into the war, produced the two organisations that would rise in April 1916. But one of them, the Irish Volunteers, was itself divided on insurrection. The IRB worked, where possible, secretly inside other nationalist organisations and secretly managed them. It had helped set up the Irish Volunteers at the end of 1913. A detonating minority... At least a big part of the volunteers, including its main public leaders around Aon McNeil, the visible national head of the volunteers, and Bulma Hobson, 21, were against a rising in 1916. The argument seems to have been concerns with the ideas commonly expressed thus, and the IRB partly shared, quotes, We do not believe that this is a revolutionary epoch, no more than the days of Mitchell were revolutionary in Ireland, nor the days of Ellen Larkin and O'Brien. An epoch to be truly revolutionary must have a dominating number of men with a revolutionary spirit, ready to dare all and take all risks for the sake of their ideals. In quotes from um, Ireland Disaffected or Revolutionary Workers' Republic, 13th of November 1915. Henry Heinzmann, leader of the pre-war British Marxists, an organisation in which 
Connolly had first enrolled, enrolled the first democratic federation, calls the rising of the Commune of Dublin, compared it to the Commune of Paris in 1871. And because it was maybe a living link with that tradition, perhaps the rising was the last Blanquist revolutionary movement with Connolly, now representative in it of the old French attempts to merge socialism with Jacobin nationalism. Connolly seems to have believed that military action, almost of any sort, could have been a detonator to nationalist islands. The rising was on the pattern of the 19th century Blanquist risings in Paris, or anywhere, anyway of their theory and doctrine. The Blanquists took their general situation into account, but decisive in their doctrine was the number of men ready to rise and adequately supply an adequate supply of guns and ammunition. At the start of the war, in August 1914, Connolly advised and publicly advocated insurrection against all war and, and all imperialism, German as well as British. That had been what all socialists had been saying, and what the socialists who opposed war after it started continued to, after it started continued to say. They continued to meet at conferences at Zimmerwald and Kienthal and Stockholm and founded a third communist international in Moscow in March 1919. Connolly had been of those in the Socialist International who advocated after Gustav Herve an immediate general strike in response to the outbreak of imperialist war, such as Vladimir Ilyanov uh, Lenin had said in, re in reply to them, that the um, likely pro-war mass sentiment at the beginning of a war, when people did not even know what a modern war meant, was the worst time to call for a general strike against war. If a revolutionary general strike could not be called at will before the start of the war, and it could not, then threatening one for the start of a war was no more than empty talk. Leading advocates of the general strikes to stop war, such as Gustave Herve in France, with his paper La Guerre Sociale, turned patriot when France was invaded and there was no German mass movement, labour or non-labour, to stop it, or even to protest at the German invasion of Belgium and France, or the Allied Austrian invasion and mass murders in Serbia. Connolly had indulged in the empty talk and then collapsed in support of German imperialism and insurrection, now, now a form of Irish nationalism and a, a belief of in mass nationalist spontaneity needing only a detonator. Spontaneism. Connolly had the same spontaneist view that he had long had on industrial unions and socialism, but now he expected revolutionary impulse from Irish nationalism and anti-British feeling. Connolly had hoped to provoke the Irish volunteers into an insurrection by leading and showing the way. The poor states the Labour movement was in, pressure from the IRB and his knowledge of the IRB commitments to arising some time during the war, re 
restrained Connolly from making a minority insurrection before Easter 1916. As it was, the rising was far too early in relation to Irish developments, though it was in, in accordance with the insurgents' erroneous idea of how the war was going. The Irish Republic Brotherhoods, IRB in the USA, the Fenians, the secret revolutionary party which had existed in Ireland, Britain and the USA since 1958-59, to had decided on the outbreak of the World War that during it they would organise a rising in Ireland to win independence. They, they were in the insurrectionary tradition of the French blankists' uh, secret societies to whom having enough fighters, guns and ammunitions was the decisive preparation for insurrection. Yet they did not take account of England's vast superior strength in the thin and treacherous little adage, a romantic half-truth, England's difficulty in his island's opportunity. So the IRB was committed from the start to rising before the World War was over. It had been committed to it for decades. For the IRB to uh, uh, to comment to for the IRB, the commitment was not a response to the defeat of a previous perspective, as it was with Connolly, but a long-held dogma. In the events of the Americans would be surprised um, that the IRB in Ireland had decided to act so early in the war as 1916, but they decided that those in Ireland um, alone should decide that. That's the main this is uh, <laughs> page 12, um, that the main public leaders of their open organisation, the Irish Volunteers, were against a rising, made a problem for the IRB which they never solved, which led them to try to fool McNeil and others and to try to manipulate the Irish Volunteers unknowingly into an insurrection which and which determined what happened and did not happen after the Easter weekend of 1916. Questions of temperament and such things aside, the disagreement was about what a minority such as they knew they were could do in an epoch which Connolly himself called not revolutionary. Connolly's statement of the insurrection case for action now was possibly written against the doubters and opponents of Connolly's spontaneism. They argued that there would be no rallying to the All-Ireland Volunteer Insurrection that was then proposed by Persons Connolly. An IRB Supreme Council meeting in, in January decided to go for a rising within weeks, and on 5th of February, a, a courier from Ireland arrived at New York to tell the IRB people there who had regular communication via the German embassy in the USA that a plan was set for Easter. Most of the volunteers knew nothing of those plans, though as Irish volunteers after the volunteers split at the start of the war, they had committed themselves in general to action. They were to mobilize, be mobilised for manoeuvres and manipulated blinds into a rising. Aon McNeil and his co-thinkers uh, wanted to keep the Irish volunteers intact through the war, um, during biding their time, building their organisation. 
The division between the insurrectionists and McNeil, Hobson and their friends, and Roger Casement, who came to Ireland on Good Friday 1916 to stop the rising because he knew no German officers and only meagre armies had been sent and thought it to be hopeless, proved irreconcilable as did their suspicion of each other. McNeil at first did not know a rising was planned and was imminent. Though Peirce, leader of the Bill IRB and the insurrectionists in the volunteers continued to talk of a rising with the initiator and official leader of the volunteers, he kept the actual plan secret from McNeil. The insurrectionists' plan was to mobilise the Irish volunteers for manoeuvres, a thing that had become common in Ireland since 1913, and the UVF and Irish volunteers and the rise against Britain under cover of the manoeuvres. Some such story might well have been dictated for security reasons, but in fact became an attempt to deceive the non-IRB volunteers, their leadership and most of those who were to rise. Then McNeil was persuaded to agree to the rising. He changed his mind against uh, again when he heard the German ship with guns had been captured, 21st of April, and sunk off the Kerry coast by its captain, 22nd of April. And Casement had been arrested, also 21st of April, and taken to London, rejecting being an informer to the British states on the Saturday night, 22nd the heads of the volunteers bought space in the Sunday Independent uh, to announce that there would after or be no manoeuvre on the Easter Sunday. And at this point, everything seemed to descend to buffoonery, to comic opera, to a bit of a joke. The fighting and the way the leaders died would help change that utterly, but not until the rising had been defeated. The insurgents missed having the rising on the day the Western Church had assigned for Easter Sunday that year, the day in which Jesus Christ rose from the dead, as Ireland, they believed, was rising through them. The loss was a serious one to people who would sing Catholic hymns as the GPO burnt around them. McNeil thought he had stopped the rising, he also thought he had stopped the manoeuvres of Peirce, Connolly and others against himself and the anti-insurrectionists and the volunteers. He had stopped the unknowing members of the Irish volunteers being led unknowing into an, into an insurrection. But the outcome was up to the insurgents. Depleted as they would be, unsure as they were about what would happen outside Dublin. They decided to rise in Dublin try to try to keep to the plan for Dublin that had been worked out by Joseph Plunkett and James Connolly, and on the expectation of many more insurgents in Dublin and as a part of a nationwide rising. They believed that all the alternatives would be were worse. The way they saw it, on Easter Sunday, 1916, the choice lay between one kind of defeat or another, either a defeat in battle that might help rouse the forces for a new struggle, or defeat without a fight, which would bring discouragement and demoralisation in its wake, as so often before in Irish history. 
they decided to fight. McNeil had dealt with the rising of Perse and Connolly, a very serious blow all over Ireland, but most of all in Dublin, where the rising did take place, but with seriously reduced numbers. The insurrectionists were trying to um, manipulate most of those they looked to to fight on their side to turn out for their rising without knowing about it. McNeil's cancellation seriously cut the number who took part in the rising. Some were confused, some agreed with McNeil against the rising, some were glad of an excuse not to put their lives at risk against the terrible odds they faced. Page 12, Chapter 8, The Rising Before the Rising, the Irish Volunteers and the Citizen Army had ended their organisational separation. Together they became the Army of the Irish Republic, though their separate command structures seemed to have survived the unification. The insurgents went out to fight the greatest empire the world has seen in its second city, near its centre, um, Militarify. They would have uh, uh, militarily. <laughs> they would have done better with the All Island Insurrection plans, or even a full turnout in Dublin. But they did very well with with what they had, as the school verse put in Brian um, Borrow's speech against the Danes before the Battle of Clontarf. Quotes, what's though brothers leagues against us? What's though myriads by the foe? Victory will be more honoured in the myriads overthrow. End quotes. No call for strikes was made, though the military leader of the rising James Connolly was a prominent leader, arguably with Jim Larkin, gone to the USA since October 1914, the leader of the Irish labour movement. The insurgents did not take the telephone exchange or the railway stations. They, they did attack uh, Dublin Castle, long-time centre of British rule in Ireland. If they had pressed the attack, they could have taken it, but they did not, thinking that there were many more British troops there than there were. Across Dublin, on the 24th of April, the events at the GPA were repeated at several locations. Something like the seizure of the GPO headquarters was also planned for a number of cities in Ireland. Figures for the Dublin insurgents vary. There were maybe 1,200 to 1,400 in all. 900 volunteers, some of the Fianna youth, perhaps 200 or 300 women of Kuman Na Mban, 200 from the Irish Citizen Army. A few of the Fianna um, carried spikes, the easily made weapon of the latest, the last great rising in the year 1798. Seven signatories of their proclamation and members of the provisional government were in the GPO. Tom Clark was 58 years old and had spent 15 years in a hellish British prison designed to break him. Patrick Pierce had been a home rule nationalist until 1912. James Connolly was a veteran socialist until late August 1914. His relation with socialism there um, also after is a 
a subject of dispute and misunderstanding among socialists. Sean Makatiamata uh, had been disabled by polio but was secretary of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Thomas McDonough was a university teacher. Joseph Mary Plunkett was the son of a papal count, took part in the rising, still bandaged from an operation and perhaps would have died soon of tuberculosis. They waited and prepared, knowing that the British would attack. The first attack came almost immediately from a squadron of lancers who happened to be near the GPO when the insurgents seized. They were easily routed. Um, page 13. Um, shooting them down, the insurgents demonstrated that this was a serious rising. Comparatively, the Irish were better trained and better marksmen. The English soldiers, who included many Irish soldiers of the British Army, were raw, inexperienced and less well-trained. The insurgents' performance led the British to overestimate their numbers and some to think that the insurgents were professional soldiers from Germany. At Mount Street Bridge, for example, some thought the Irish were far more numerous than they were because their shooting was so uh, accurate and effective. Even after the fighting was over, John Dillon in the House of Commons talked of 3,000 insurgents. The British soldiers suffered heavier casualties, but Irish losses were absolute loss. They could not, in the short term, replenish their losses by much, though they were, they, though they at the start, and James Connolly to the end, thought that areas outside Dublin would rise. They were short of fighters from the beginning. A cancellation of planned Irish volunteers manoeuvres on Easter Sunday by Aon McNeil had seriously depleted the insurgents' ranks and limited it to Dublin, where the citizen army had not been affected by McNeil. Apart from the headquarters at the GPO, the other centres of rebellion were chosen because each one marked and blocked either a British army barracks or balance art mill. The route of British reinforcements into the centre of Dublin from Kingstown, now done Legoche, where they would come off British ships. They formed a protective cordon uh, around the centre in the GPO. As they advanced over the week, the British tightened the noose on the insurgent headquarters at the GPO. For the first days, the serious fighting took place at a periphery surrounding the GPO command centres of the Rising. The initial centres of the Rising threw off centres not directly planned for. Insurgents with rifles confronted the British Army, which had the mobility and the initiative. Superimposed on the jewels of snipers were the ravages of big guns, which scattered fire as well as death on the centre of Dublin. Unseen snipers were in action too. Um, Ernest Cavana, the cartoonist of the Workers' Republic, who was not an insurgent and had no gun, was shot dead on the steps of the Union and the Workers' Republic headquarters, Liberty Hall, by an unseen distant British sniper. Positions occupied by the insurgents were 
more or less immediate, immediately surrounded by British army men who were in the city and who were um, added to all through the six days of fighting. Soon more British soldiers began to reinforce and expand the forces, fight, forces fighting the army of the Irish Republic that was struggling to come to life. At the end of the week, the British soldiers numbered about 20,000 and the odds against the insurgents were more than 10 to 1. Large parts of central Dublin were set alight by British shells. The headquarters of the Rising, the GPO, a very large building began to burn from the top downwards, and that took time. The last evenings before the surrender, the Dublin sky was lit up by the light of many fires across the city, started by widespread British artillery fire. Connolly never attempted to involve the transport union in the Rising, and I presume that that was because he didn't think he could. While on the eve of the Rising, he, the acting general secretary of the Union, for nearly two years, raised a green flag and her harp, and without a crown, over Union headquarters at Liberty Hall. He had to ask it as a personal favour. The Union was then, after its great days in the Dublin Labour War of 1913-14, down to 700 or so. It would grow again fast in the later years of the World War. Some of the populace seized the chance to loot. The insurgents, in vain, told them to stop. The pacifist Francis Sheehy Skeffington, a journalist who wrote for the Manchester Guardian, went out to stop the rising. He was seized by British soldiers and shot on the order of a British officer, John um, Bowen Colthurst, who was declared insane by British inquiry and then released after a short spell in Broadmoor. Centres of the Rising, the four courts, an impressive building <coughs> not far from GPO headquarters was occupied to counter the Marlborough and Royal Barracks. The South Dublin Union, a large workhouse, was occupied to block Richmond Barracks and a common British Army route into the city. Kingsbridge Station, a garrison was put into Jacob's Biscuit Factory, which had been an important scene of workers' action of 19, in 1913-14, and one into St Stephen's Green to block access to central Dublin from Richmond's Barracks and Harcourt's Street Station. Uh, Mikhail Mellon, his deputy was Constance Makiewicz, uh, both of the Citizen Army, took over St Stephen's Green and at first followed the Great War example, um, following the Great War example, uh, dug trenches there. At Boland's Mill, the garrison was led by Eamon de Valera, who would preside over much of the mass migration from independent Ireland in subsequent decades, and who was the one commander to be allowed to survive after the insurrection, perhaps because he had been born in the USA and Britain was courting America into the war. The most tremendous firefight took place at Mount Street's Bridge, which was an offshoot of the Boland's Mill garrison. 17 insurgents killed 230 British soldiers there. Some of the British troops did not uh, at first even know 
what country they were in. When later on in the rising um, rumours uh, spread that the German army had landed and were fighting against the British, a cheer went up among the insurgents. But Britain had, of course, tremendous potential, and even when stretched in the Great War, great reserves, they rallied soldiers nearby, and then they started pouring soldiers in. On the second day, Tuesday, a British ship, the Helga, came up came up the Liffey firing cannon at the rebel positions already under cannon fire. The British army fought their way slowly towards the centre of insurgency, the GPO, the centre of Dublin had caught fire from the big guns in the English of the English. By Friday evening, the whole centre of Dublin was a sea of fire spreading, and the English soldiers were closing in, um, killing and wounding. Three hundred ten unarmed civilians um, were killed. By Friday, the fire in the GPO and. Uh, had burned down to the ground floor and the walls were very hot. Some of the insurgents were singing Catholic hymns to keep their spirits up, of course, but feeling themselves the heirs and representatives of the Irish generations who fought for their rights to be Catholics. Um, in their way, they prefigured the 26 um, counties' future. The Irish Nationalist Rebellion took a distinct Catholic religious character as would the state of the rebels would erect in 26 of Ireland's counties. Connolly took two wounds, one on the Tuesday and a flesh wound, not too serious. Then on the Thursday, a bullet shattered his left ankle. From then and until a surgeon worked on it the day before he was shot, Connolly was in sharp and continuous pain. He had to be carried around on a stretcher, but he continued to function as the military leader and, as Peirce said, um, brain of the rising. Still, the fire advanced on them, arm in arm, so to speak, with the British army. In fact, the English-Irish army, Irishmen, were on both sides of the fighting. They decided to evacuate the GPO, pouring through the walls, out of sight of snipers, into Moor Street, only breaking cover when they had to. In Moor Street uh, died Michael O'Rahili, disputed chief of the clan O'Healy, a supporter of McNeil, who had been against a rising. He had worked hard to stop it, driving around to see people he thought he could influence. Then he joined the rising, in the words W.B. Yeats puts in his mouth, quotes, because I helped to, to wind the clock, I came to hear it strike, end quotes. Dying, he said, quotes, fancy missing this end, dying of a chill or caught cunning, uh, or caught running for a tram, end quotes. On the Saturday, 29th of April, with the centre of the Dublin on fire and the British forces continuously getting bigger and more in command, Perse decided to surrender. A lot of the fighters did not want to surrender. They had acquitted themselves as well themselves well in the fighting and wanted to fight on. They did not feel 
uh, beaten. Tom Clark, the old Fenian, the poor, pure spirit of the rising, compared to whom Pierce and Connolly were newcomers. Connolly had belonged to a different political current until after the outbreak of war, wanted to fight to the death, but he accepted the majority decision and surrendered to wait for the attentions of the firing squad. Elizabeth O'Farrell, under a white flag, took a note to General Lowe, commander of the British Army in Dublin. There is a photo of Pierce surrendering. Dublin's people were hostile to the the rising and uh, to the insurgents. As the insurgents were marched through the streets of Dublin, the army was also their protector from the people of Dublin. The British army under General Maxwell, its commander-in-chief for Ireland, began shooting its prisoners four days after, on 3rd of May. Pierce was among the first three. His brother, Willie, was shot, although he had not been a leader in the insurrection. John McBride, who joined the Rising at the last minute, was probably shot because he had been in an Irish brigade that fought for the South African Boers against the British at the beginning of the 20th century. Only a few were given a trial, and no one was allowed a defence lawyer. Ninety uh, prisoners were sentenced to death. Fifteen were shot. Another prisoner, uh, Roger Casement, was hanged in Pentonville Jail on the 3rd of August. They were uh, charged with giving and and comfort um, intentionally to the enemy, Germany. Page 14. Pierce, at his uh, court-martial, gloried in that association. Quotes, I admit I have organised men to fight against Britain. As far as I can see, she, Germany, did her best to help us. She went, she sent a ship with, with men. Germany has not sent it us gold. End quotes. In fact, um, it had not been sent, it had not sent soldiers either. It, it had done next to nothing. Connolly, the wounded man about to be strapped to a chair and shot, told the court it had no right, he acknowledged, to try him. He believed, quotes, that the British government has no right in Ireland, never had any right in Ireland, and never can have any right in Ireland, end quotes. Connolly replied to the only charge, denying that he had deliberately ill-treated people who were entitled to be treated as prisoners of war. Roger Casement was the only one to have a chance in court to make a full and proper defence of his own opinion and actions. He, like Connolly, denied England's right to try him. F.E. Smith, as Lord Chancellor, uh, prosecuted Casement. He had been a leading arrangement before the war. All uh, all bar one of the 16 men met death as devout Irish Catholics, casement as a recent convert. The exception was not Connolly, but to Tom Clark, an old Fenian. He had formed a hostility to the church for its enunciation of the Fenians, and Clark was not a man to compromise his principles. Connolly died 
uh, proselytizing Catholic. On the eve of his death, he got his Dublin Protestant wife, Lily, to promise to convert to Catholicism, which he did, following proper instructions three months after they strapped him in the chair in the yard of Kilmainham Jail and shot him dead. Democracy in the Rising There was no hint of democracy in the Rising, formal or any other sort of democracy. Irish citizens were known to be for the British, for the war, for small nations, for John Redmond and Home Rule, and the belief that England, quotes, may keep faith for all that is done and said, end quotes, on Home Rule. Uh, in 1916, Redmond's advice to join the army was still very popular. Many thought they were asserting Ireland's rights by asserting Belgium's. Initially, they had scarcely any idea even of what modern war was. They imagined gallantry and heroics, where the reality was endless machine-wrought mass murder, committing it and being its victim. Opposition to the war was equated, in Ireland as in Britain, with being pro-German and being against stopping Germany's much-publicised atrocities in Belgium. British troops going up against the insurgents were welcomed by the people of Dublin as saviours and heroes who had come to rescue them from madmen and pro-Germans. People um, fed the army, marching from Dunlocaire to Dublin. The troops received the welcome and food and tea as the people's own soldiers came to save them. When the insurgents were being marched through the streets to imprisonment in England, Dublin citizens spat at them and made hostile demonstrations against them. The soldiers had to be their protection from the people of Dublin. Admiration for those who had risen and put up a tremendous fight was um, sobering the people, and there was the folk memory uh, in the songs and stories which the people knew and which the home rule politicians had taught and yarned about, but those uh, had not yet been uh, turned, had not yet turned opinion. Blood Sacrifice, quotes by James um, Finin, Finton uh, Lelor. Any man who tells you that an act of armed resistance, even if offered by ten men armed with stones, any man who tells you that such an act of resistance is premature, imprudent or dangerous, any and every such man should at once be spurned, spat at, for, uh, at. For remark you this and recollect it, that somewhere and somehow that by someone, somebody a beginning must be made, and that the first act of resistance is always and must be uh, ever premature, imprudent and dangerous. End quotes. <clears throat> the myth of the blood sacrifice, the terrible beauty of Yeats' poem, the single event that changed the course of history, clings like fog to the rising as explanation, rationalisation, justification. Why otherwise? would sane men and women start an armed struggle that they could only lose and where an unknowable number of them would surely die. Why, they, why 
They thought that a blood sacrifice was needed to redeem Ireland and to redeem themselves. Yeats wrote, <coughs> quotes, Oh, words are lightly spoken, said Peirce to Connolly. Maybe a breath of politic, wor- politic words has withered our rose tree, or maybe but a wind that blows across the bitter sea. It needs to be but watered. <coughs> James Connolly replied, to make the green come out again and spreads on every side and shake the blossom from the bud to the garden's pride. But where can we draw water? said Peirce to Connolly. When all the wells are parched away, O oh, plain as plain can be, there's nothing but our own red blood can make a ro- right rose tree. End quotes. In fact, none of the insurgents behaved like people offering themselves as a blood sacrifice, not the men who fought so long and so well, like Joseph Mary Plunkett, who wrote a poem about seeing Christ's blood upon the rose, or the Dublin trade unionists with Connolly, who refused to sign the surrender notice in general, but signed it with a note, quotes, I agree to those conditions for the men only under my own command in the Moore Street district and for the men in, in Stephen's Green Command. End quotes. The account of the rising as blood sacrifice is a rationalization of the actions of revolutionaries made vicariously by non revolutionaries. This happened. There was a big chance that it would be defeated. Deaths of revolutionaries would be its consequences. Therefore, that was the intention. Plainly, the national rising which the insurgents were trying to organise until the Sunday Independent came out with McNeil's announcement and calling off the manoeuvres was dangerous and might have resulted in their deaths, but plainly no blood sacrifice was intended. If some psychological tray of purses might have or could be said to have pointed in a certain direction, who in 1916 shared that. McNeil and his friends, holding aloof, thought a rising had no chance, that only suicidal people would want it. Therefore the insurgents wanted suicide, so death must have been their settled intent, or so it is often assumed. In fact, on Easter Sunday, the insurgents faced either the fight they chose or a demoralising defeat, the worst defeat, defeat without a fight, the British authorities knew about the plans for the rising. They had captured the German army ship, arrested casements, and sent messages from the RB people in the USA via US Secret Service raid on the German consul- consulates on 18th of April, and so would have moved against the insurgents even if they cancelled action. They postponed intended arrests until after Easter because of casements' arrest on Good Friday. They had thought Casement was central in the affairs of the putative insurgents, and so his rest spelt the end of a possible rising. Um, moving on to page 15. Thus, uh, inadvertently, Casement ensured the, that the insurgents were not stri- rounding, rounded up on the eve of the rising. The insurgents had planned a national rising with serious German support in ordnance and troops. Faced with catastrophe on Easter Sunday after McNeil's cancellation and the sinking of the ship with few German arms, they behaved thereafter 
as the desperate to determined revolutionaries they were. A contemporary song tells the truth. My name is James Connolly and I have not come here to die. Chapter 9, <coughs> Germany and the Plans for a Rising The rising that happened after mishap including an open split in its own ranks and on the day originally set for the rising on, on one hand and the rising as they planned it on the other were sufficiently distinct from each other as to be two different things. There were at least two sorts of anti-imperialism the general anti-imperialism of the consistent anti-imperialist women and men of the Socialist International and of James Connolly in August 1914, and specific anti-imperialism such as the anti-British feeling of some of the Irish. The 1916 proclamation was not generally anti-imperialist, but only anti-English. It had no concern at all for the crimes of the victims of the imperialism's fighting Britain. Austria's war in Serbia would kill at least 1,250,000 people in 1914-18. to The most brutal Austrian imperialist attempt to kill Serbia was of no importance to those fighting for Irish independence from Britain and looking to Germany and Austria's gallant allies. The rising would affect anti-imperialists all over the world, but the insurgents aligned with the imperialists who were uh, anti-British. The rising planned, as distinct from the one that had that's happened, had an important German dimension of guns and officers. When the British government had made, when the British government made much of the alleged. German involvement in 1916, they exaggerated, but they did not just invent. On Easter Monday, the insurgents did not know for sure in Dublin that none of the German officers which they had asked for were coming to Ireland to organise their military efforts. Roger Casement had tried to come to Dublin to tell them that there would be very little German help and to get their rising stopped but he had been captured on the previous Friday and after a trial which would be would be hanged in in London on the 3rd of August and the ship with a few old guns sent sunk on the Saturday. Some of the Irish leaders were still hoping for a landing by German officers to lead the widespread rising they expected and had tried to organise. German aid came to nothing. Connolly was serving Germany as a propagandist in the belief that Germany would take Ireland's side, but Germany did not serve the insurgents. It was the traditional IRB doctrine that only when England was at war could Ireland strike successfully in arms for its independence. It originated with John Mitchell, a nationalist deported from Ireland during their famine. Mitchell's doctrine came to mean for some that the Irish could rise in any British war and that the Irish would support any power against England. At the very start of World War I, Connolly mocked the IRB for having supported the Tsar in 1904 and supporting the German warlords in 1914. 
Days later, he publicly joined those he had mocked. The pro-German policy made sense according to IOB tradition and according to Mitchell. Bring war in our time, O Lord. But it made no anti-imperialist or socialist sense and little real politic sense. It was foolish. There was no reason for anyone to be fooled about what Germany would do after winning the war or to think that Britain was uniquely imperialist and Germany was not, or even to be fooled about whether Germany would make a serious military effort in in Ireland. It would not. As it happened, the German high command was right at Easter 1916. Most of the Irish would have been against them if they'd tried to intervene seriously. If Germany had made a serious military effort, then probably Ireland would have become a theatre of the Great War, with an unequal civil war within Ireland nested within it. The Germans may have been um, cooled (coughs) towards the idea of German soldiers in Ireland by the failure of Roger Casement to recruit even an unsteady Irish brigade from Irish prisoners of war in Germany. Casement's way of presenting his case may have contributed to failure, but politically it was that the POWs were on Britain's side, as they had been on the invasion of Belgium, and they were nearer the truth of things than the German apologists Casement and Connolly were. (coughs) The pro-German Irish made many proposals to Germany from 1914 onwards to land soldiers to fight the British and equipment to arm the Irish. On the eve of rising, uh, Sean MacDiamada told IRB President Dennis McCulloch that there would be probably, quote, probably a German submarine named after the Lily, and the Germans were going to send uh, at least 250 officers, end quotes. Ireland was divided on the war with a pro-British majority. The more we assume the success of arising with serious German help and German partition, the more credence we give to the idea of a build-up of a British force against them and Ireland becoming a theatre of the Great War. Before the war, both um, Green and Orange had contact with Germany in the immediate pre-war period. Both sides brought guns from Germany to Ireland. When war came, the Unionists sided with Britain, but in the run-up there was half-serious talk of them transferring their allegiance to Germany. Thomas Andrews, the Secretary of the Ulster Unionist Council, declared in December 1910, quote, at all costs we will defend ourselves, and if the worst comes to the worst, I can only say for myself and I believe for my colleagues that if we were deserted by Great Britain, I would rather be governed by Germany than by Patrick Ford and John Redmond and company, end quotes. James Craig, future Prime Minister of the Six Counties, said in January 1911, quotes, There is a spirit spreading abroad which I can testify from my personal knowledge that Germany and the German Emperor would be preferred to the rule 
of John Redmond, Patrick Ford, and the Molly McGears, end quotes. Frederick Crawford, who organised the gun running for the UVF, uh, said on um, the 29th of April 1912, quotes, if they were put out of the Union, he would be, he would infi- infinitely um, prefer to change his allegiance right over to the Emperor of Germany or anyone else who had got a proper and stable government, end quotes. It is likely that the German government knew about the big arms shipments to the Unionists from Hamburg in April 1914 and tacitly allowed it to go ahead. Sir Edward Carson himself, leader of the Enemies of Home Rule and UK Cabinet Minister in 1915 and 1916-17, attended a luncheon party with Kaiser Wilhelm II in August 1913 at Homburg. Carson is reported to have changed the subject when Wilhelm II raised the subject of Ulster. The equivalent of on the Home Rule side of these Unionist leaders was the Irish Party at Westminster and its leader, John Redmond. The Irish Party did not have contact with Germany or still less support it. Their votes at Westminster kept the Liberal Party in power at the start of the war. On the Nationalist side, it was uh, the rebels, the RB and the Citizen Army that had contact with Germany or made propaganda for Germany. When Austria gave an ultimatum that could not be accepted by a Serbian state that wanted to retain its independence, and when Germany backed Austria in July 1914, the dispute in the UK probably influenced those governments and thus expedited World War One. They thought England would soon be in a state of civil war over Ireland and would not be able to intervene in the Europe. European War, page 16. The Director of Ordnance on the Orange side was Frederick Crawford. In June 1913, English police seized Crawford's secret armoury in Hammersmith. But by the eve of the Great War, the UVF had imported 19,000 guns from Germany and had tens of thousands of members now well armed. Early in 1914, Crawford got agreements from a government's, a German arms dealer for a big consignment of high-quality guns manufactured in Austria. The consignment, bigger than all previous deliveries of guns for the Orange Corps put together, arrived at Lahn Harbour in uh, April 1914 and was distributed without a hitch. When nationalists landed a much smaller cargo of guns, 1,500 at Howth, in July 1914, there was a confrontation with British soldiers in which three civilians were shot dead and a number wounded. That was made a notorious example of the different approaches to nationalist and to orange arming. The contempt of British officials for the nationalist and Catholic Irish runs through the story like a, an orange thread. Germany and Austria took account of the prospect of civil war in the UK. There was no equivalence in the top ranks of the Irish nationalism. 
John Redmond was criticised by such nationalists as jo James Connolly for being too quick to pledge allegiance and support to Britain. The RAB had been uh, for Germany in the coming war from at least 1911, when Germany fights England, Irish freedom, October, October 1911. When war came, the RAB were for Germany until the USA entered the war in 1917, then they were for the USA. Connolly said that the ROB had supported Russia in the Japan-Russian War of 1904 because they thought Japan was Britain's friend. According to John Devoy, leader of the ROB organization in the USA, the ROB never took German goals, but they were Irish nationalists against British imperialism, but not anti-imperialist or even anti-racist. Casement's plans for Germany. The scheme developed by Roger Casement and taken up by the IRB um, advocated no less than the radical reorganisation of the world imperialist system. Germany would displace Britain, yet in the fantastic Irish theory of it, the newly dominated Germany would not be an imperialist power. It would not be an imperialist despite holding large areas of East Africa and Southwest Africa and Belgium and large parts of Poland. At the end, according to the best IRB scenario, Ireland would bear about the same relation to victorious Germany as she had to Britain before the war when Britain promised home rule um, and of course, to get to that scenario, uh, benign for Ireland, Germany would have um, uh, to win the war, champion Ireland, and see a revolution within the imperialist world system, what the Germans called world politics. Meanwhile, the Irish would rise. If IRB advice were taken, the Germans would land in Ireland and sweep out the British, or more likely make Ireland the theatre of the Great War, with a big element of intra-Irish civil war in it. Much of Home Rule Ireland, as well as Unionist Ireland, would have been on Britain's side against Germany and the IRB. The shift of Irish feelings and opinion did not even begin until after the British shootings which followed the rising. Even outside the North East, a big majority in Ireland still supported Home Rule and Redmond. Not until Britain proposed conscription in Ireland in April 1918 was there the decisive shift from breaking up uh, British, from being pro-British, which led to the breakup of the Home Rule Party. Even then, the shift away from being pro-British was in, uh, limited and not uh, positively pro-German. In early uh, April 1917, the USA joins the World War on Britain's side and the IRB, considering US pressure on Britain more valuable than hopes of German aid, immediately shift to a pro-US, pro-Allied position. The armistice on 11th of November 1918 brought crowds uh, cheering the Allied victory onto the streets of Dublin and in radical nationalist newspapers like Arthur Griffin's Nationality hopes that the declared policies of President Wilson of the USA would bring a peace favouring small nations and, notably, 
Ireland. There never was uh, even wartime nationalist sense in the pro-German policy of the Irish. The Germans had been in favour of the Irish Brigade, which Casement thought he could create. With his failure, their interest and involvement waned. Would it not have been? Would it not have revived if German officers had been in command of a, a rising all over Ireland? The RAB's uh, aim was to ensure that Ireland had a seat and a voice um, at the peace conference that would surely follow the war. But Ireland had been a subordinate part of the UK for nearly 120 years. Um, how could how would Ireland have a place at the peace conference? Germany would win. And what would be what would give Ireland a place? Why would Britain agree to that? It would have no choice. Uh, Germany would insist. The, if the policy made sense, it was for a rising in alliance with Germany, strong enough to win Ireland a seat at the conference, whatever Britain wanted, but limited enough not to risk German domination of Ireland. Casement went to Germany from the USA, backed by the IRB, in October 1914. It was to launch an Irish brigade from Irish soldiers captured and imprisoned by Germany. Almost all Irish POWs, in fact, believed in Home Rule and John Redmond. Casement seemed strange and exotic to them, the Fenian. Casement's statement of his case was said not to be in their language and concerns. The soldiers reflected the island from which they came, and it was not then ready to follow Fenians in addition. Casements would have presented his unreal picture of post war world of a post war world of a benign German hegemony. To soldiers in whose minds Germany's invasion of Belgium would have been uppermost, that boded not too well for another small Catholic country. They did not share Casement's hostility to England. All in all, though they were victims of British imperialist propaganda, they had a far better picture of reality than Casement had. Casement recruited perhaps 50 Irish POWs. By contrast, Joseph Pilsudski had recruited some 25,000 Polish uh, legions to fight with Australia against Russia. Soon Casement himself ceased to believe in the Irish Brigade and fell into despair and depression. The Germany, Germans steadily diminished their hopes in Irish nationalism until those had dwindled to nothing but Easter 1916. Casement's relations with uh, Germany led him to agree in principle from his Irish brigade that his Irish brigade could fight in Egypt to wrest control from Britain. Devoy, on behalf of the IRB, strongly objected to that. Nevertheless, it shows light on the fact that the men and women of 1916 were not anti-imperialists. A difference-minded uh, Connolly, as late as early 1914, had mocked the Republicans for backing Russia. England's supposed enemy in the Russian-Japanese War of 1904-5 and for backing the German warlord from the start in World War I. 
Yet a policy of fighting England alone, as distinct from fighting imperialism as a whole, that is from the socialist policy currently started with in August 1914, implied an alliance with Germany. It was nationalist opposition to specific imperialism, as well as against socialist opposition to all imperialism. The socialist argument was that now, in the World War, it was impossible to make a limited one-sided fight against one imperialism without endorsing its enemy imperialism, which were doing similar things themselves. Page 17. In the war, Austria was wreaking horrors in Serbia, in Britain, as Britain had done against Ireland around the 1798 rising, and the Turkish Empire had slaughtered a million Armenians in 1915. Yet from September 1914, the depleted labor movement, or its Catholic majority, James Connolly in in particular, were pro-German. The Irish worker, the paper of the Transport Union, was banned for being pro-German in late 1915. Its replacements, the second series of Workers' Republic, edited by Connolly, published consistent pro-German propaganda and apologetics for Germany doing doings in occupied Belgium. It even, 4th of December 1915, reprinted material lauding the Kaiser and uh, 18th of March 1916, presented Germany... Germany's as a, uh, quotes, homogenous empire of self-governing peoples with more possible possibilities of freedom and civilization, end quotes. Jim Larkin, from, an early, from early September 1915, was an agitator in the USA, paid by Germany against the US joining the war on British, Britain's side. The Irish Citizen Army had begun as a strikers militia in 1913-14 to uh, deter police and the Catholic Orange Order, the ancient order of Hibernians, from attacking strikers. It was continued and developed after the strike by James Connolly and others. Connolly had met the war as an internationalist and anti-imperialist and an adherent of the socialist international's policy of resisting all the imperialists, including German imperialism, and making war on war. Most of his life he believed that socialists should mobilise workers against all all imperialisms. He held the stance for about a month into the war. Then Connolly came to think that he, like the IRB could fight one imperialist side only, with the active help of the other. <coughs> he was positively for Germany in the Great War, again and again until the Rising. He told lies for Germany about occupied Belgium. In principle, Irish nationalists had a right to use one imperialism against another, but they did not have to write um, in support of Germany, and what they, especially James Connolly, did not have to write in support of Germany, and yet wrote to find them. Within weeks of the start of war in 1914, Connolly and Piers and Tom Clark and Sean McDiarmada 
and Sean T. O'Kelly, the future Fian Fail president of the 26 counties, attended a secret conference in Clark's tobacconist shop in Dublin to coordinate the promised insurrection. That may have been the point at which Connolly crystallised the pre-German policy he had publicly mocked only days earlier. In any case, he would have to be an apologist for Germany for the rest of his life. A low-level apologist, using untruths and supporting German lies where he thought it was necessary. For example, German invasion and, after heavy fighting, occupation of most of gallant little Catholic Belgium had an impact, especially in small Catholic and small Catholic Ireland. Condley appeared as a full-scale justifier of the invasion and the atrocities, yet the atrocities had happened even though the critics of Germany were hypocritical. Connolly defended and justified in Belgium what he deplored elsewhere. If, if one were to take sides on the war instead of opposing all imperialism, as Connolly did for most of August 1914, then on the issues, the invasion of Belgium and France and Serbia, the genocide of the Armenians, and if you could ignore Russian imperialism, of course you couldn't, then the choice would have been for British and French imperialism. The Sicilian army uh, wore the charge of being pro-German proudly. In its songs it declared, quotes, "'Tis the Germans they're out to destroy me, boys, "'whose prosperity did so annoy me, boys. "'The great German nation has sworn their damnation "'and will echo the curse with a will, me boys. "'Good old Britain, rule the ways and gobble all the lands. "'Bring out the blacks and Indian braves "'to jigger the German band. "'When the Germans come to free us, "'we will lend a helping hand.' for we believe they're just as good as any in the land, end quotes. The racism here, opposing England and France, especially because they had Indian and black soldiers in their armies, echoed the IRB. Con- Connolly must have known about the German Social Democrats' loud denunciation of German atrocities in southwest Africa, modern Namibia, in 1907, which killed maybe 80% of the Herero people. Yet Connolly uh, let himself describe Germany, Germany's as a homogenous empire of self-governing people with more possibilities of freedom and civilization. In early 1916, Connolly reprinted in Workers' Republic and with a note of broad approval writings by uh, Merrick Cram, which positively praised Germans' imperialism in Africa. Connolly cannot but have known that what he wrote glorifying Germany in the war was simply not true. James Connolly, by that stage, was a politician in the bad sense and now acted out of act out the worst and most retrograde forms of politics, saying that what he left felt would serve and justify what was politically convenient rather than what was true. The policy of the insurrectionists, both old 
IRB people and Connolly was a pyramid built on interconnected and improbable speculations and implausible assumptions. It rested on an improbable uh, concentration of events, concatenation of events and opinions, and on wistful or magic thinking. Page 18. Assume even that all their improbable things came true and islands became a state under German patronage, then it would be more likely to come under the German monarchy, which had far more power than the British one, than to be any sort of republic. And in fact, they knew that Pierce, uh, during a, a lull in the fighting of Easter 1916, discussed the possibility of a German prince being installed as king of an independent island. At a meeting of IRB organisers before the rising, Joseph Plunkett had already won acceptance uh, um, in IRB's circles for the idea of an independent Irish kingdom headed by a German Catholic prince. The IRB had assumptions about the Germans that the Germans did not share. It had a programme projected onto Germany that was not the programme of Germany and those who ruled over it. Page 18, Chapter 10, After the Rising A quick movement from the evolutionary British legal home rule nationalism, which still, despite everything, dominated the 23rd of April 1916, the day before the rising to Sinn Féin 18 months later, is an astonishing change. It is usually attributed to the rising or to the blood sacrifice of the rising, but that is too glib. As we have seen, there had been uh, much Irish sympathy for Britain and antagonism to the insurgents. The Dublin Chamber of Commerce linked the rising to the labour unrest before the Great War. George Gilmore, in Labour and the Republican Movement, reports, quotes, when representatives of the Dublin Chamber of Commerce were questioned by the Royal Commission investigating the causes of the rebellion, they gave as their view that despite their many protests and warnings, the governments had permitted an insurrectionary uh, situation to develop. Larkinism, they said, had been allowed to get out of hand. The Chamber of Commerce uh, passed a resolution to assume his gracious majesty of the loyalty of the commercial community to his person and his throne. They also do record their abhorrence of the dreadful scenes of murder, carnage and destruction resulting from the action of a section of the community in the city. Across the country, the uh, Ennis Chamber of Commerce adopted a similar policy, perhaps models on Dublin. Hostility was widespread. The Irish independence, the Union's antagonist in 1913 to 14, was called on the British to shoot the wounded James Connolly. Prime Minister Asquith gave General Maxwell, who had been the British officer commander commanding in Egypt full military powers as the rising ended. 
military rule was decreed for the whole of the islands of Ireland from Dublin to Limerick, um, where not a mouse stirred during the rising. General uh, Maxwell was the ruling military dictator. He did what he liked. Martial law continued until November 1916. The shooting started on 3rd of May with Patrick Pierce, Thomas McDonough and Tom Clark. Prisoners were shot in groups until the last Shane, Sean McDiamata and James Connolly on 12th of May. Connolly was badly wounded from the rising and for most of the time in agony. McDiamata was lame from polio. Connolly had to be strapped into a chair to be shot. They were the last, but no one knew except perhaps Maxwell. Ninety had been sentenced to death, fifteen had been shot. Were the shootings over? No one knew when or where, whether the killings would begin again. Famously, the experience has been compared to watching blood seeping out from under a locked door. There was no legal defence allowed to those sentenced. The procedure was later pronounced to have been illegal. The first thing about the killings is their uncertainty, secrecy and drawn-out character, the seeming indifference to justice and the dispensing with uh, due process. The uncertainty and insecurity stirred up by up a sizable part of the Irish people, including those who had little sympathy with the rising. British power and its use was the uh, active force confronting all the Catholic and nationalist Irish. All alike came under the direct soldier's rule of General Maxwell. People were arrested and searched all over Ireland. During the rising, the Home Rule Party and its national volunteers had exerted themselves to keep the peace, yet they also felt the arbitrary rule of the suspicious, heavy-handed soldiers in time of war. <clears throat> the story that the people of Dublin were actively hostile to the rising at first, then began to see a difference, see it differently once the British started shooting the leaders, is true, but too glib. Britain declared martial law, which uh, remained until no- November 1916 throughout the island, not only in Dublin, but also in every place where the rising took place. In Galway County, where something like a rising started but came to nothing, Liam Mellows never forgave himself for that, and in places in Limerick, which had been entirely quiet. The British army ruled, and the Tory establishment suddenly returned to rule through the restoration of its direction of Irish affairs with British army rule. With martial law throughout Ireland for six or seven months, the British military commanders reacted to the rising in a way that spread the concerns of the insurgents. <laughs> the army, in its own way, by its nature and for its own reasons, spread the politics of Irish nationalism that defeated Dublin um, had embodied. It spread the idea that the Irish were not really equal under the law, not when things got serious. The island that had thought itself near home rule was plunged backwards and downwards by martial law. For more than 50 years beyond 1916, this interaction between soldiers and civilians would be repeated again and again. It even affected the British Army in 1969-70 in Northern Ireland. 
Everywhere in Ireland, in the six or seven months after the rising, the rule of the army worked to undo the efforts of those who had limited and contained the rising, stopping its spread outside Dublin. After that came the revival of pre-war discussions in the Irish Convention of 1917-18, then the British talk from April 1918 of extending conscription to Ireland. There had been conscription in England, Scotland and Wales since January 1916, and it was extended in April 1918 to men aged 41 to 50. The campaign against it led by the church and the British abandonment of conscription. The British lost the favour they had. The Home Rule Party deplored the rising and its people did their best and effectively to stop the rising spreading outside Dublin. Nevertheless, events forced them to defend the insurgents in the House of Commons during and after the rising. John Dillon had been leader of the anti-Panel faction of Home Rulers, and after their reunion in February 1900 with the Parliamentites under John Redmond, was regarded as the most influential man in the party. In Parliament in 11, on 11th of May, Dillon declared that the insurgents had, quotes, fought a clean fight and they fought with superb bravery and skill, end quotes, and called for an end to the shooting. It was the first of a long series of cases of home rule party adopting the Republicans' positions, eventually even seceding from Parliament 20 April 1918. John Dillon had been one of those uh, agreed that land redistribution would weaken the Irish nationalists' drive for home rule, page 19. Now he asked rhetorically who was ruling under Ireland under martial law and replied, quotes, there is no government in England, in Ireland except St John Maxwell and the Dublin Gentlemen's Clubs, <coughs> end quotes, <coughs> in Parliament, 11th May 1916. The clubs meant the old upper class, the unionists and the British establishment in Ireland. The Irish people felt themselves thrown backwards. In, the, in fact, the evolutionary legal home rule party on the level of ideas, had never broken from the physical force tradition. They said it was outmoded, a thing of the past, but without having to think about it too much. Home rule Ireland recognised and had an ingrained respect, a historical respect for that physical force tradition. If not this way, they would say to their loyal supporters, then we will unsheath the Fenian sword. How many of them meant that, or half meant it, is not the point. The Home Rule Party commemorated uh, 1798. The monuments around the country uh, memorialising the public hanging of three Fenians in Manchester in 1867 were theirs, and so were the Maid of Erin monuments erected afterwards. So were the widespread commemorations of the 1798s rising. One of the events said to have revived republicanism or registered its revival and led to the rising was the funeral of O'Donovan Rossa in August 1915. There, uh, Pierce made his speech, 
islands and free will never be at peace. The national volunteers of Redmond and Dillon were there too, though unarmed. The Irish volunteers were there with arms. There was a, a great gap and yet not an ins- inseparable gap between evolutionary nationalism and the nationalism that asserted itself again in 1916. The 1916 rising was, of course, the new beginning <coughs> and affected all that followed. The new Sinn Féin. In February 1917, Count Plunkett, father to Joseph Mary Plunkett, a 1916 leader, himself not yet committed to Sinn Féin, won a by-election in Roscommon North with Sinn Féin support. A papal count, there were uh, no way he could be a non-sectarian candidate. In May 1917, Joseph McGuinness, who had taken part in the Rising and was in jail in England, won by a by-election in South Longford for Sinn Féin. John Redmond died in March 1918. His brother, Willie Redmond, who had been an MP and a British soldier, was killed in, in Europe in June 1917. After Willie Redmond's death, de Valera fought the resulting East Clare by election in July 1917 and won. It signified that Sinn Féin was in the ascendant. It reconstitutes reconstituted itself over the summer of 1917 as a new movement broader than Arthur Griffith's old Sinn Féin, which had had nothing to do with the rising. The Home Rule Party won three by-elections in early 19. It withdrew from Westminster in April 1918 over conscription. That is, it adopted the tactic advised by Sinn Féin since mid-1917. But over the course of 1918, it was outflanked. Sinn Féin's triumph in the general election of 14th of December 1918 was made possible also by the fact uh, that after Easter 1916, Britain applied two approaches to radical nationalism. There were conscientiousless slaughter. There was conscientiousless slaughter, mostly in Dublin, but only of fifteen men. Ninety were sentenced to death. Seventy-four men were reprieved, and one woman, Constance Mekiewicz, um some one thousand nine hundred were sent to jails and camps. They were released in instalments, some quite soon, some on twenty-first, twenty-second of December, nineteen sixteen and the rest on the 16th of June 1917. The places of imprisonment, like all such places, were universities of politics, here of nationalism. For their inmates, they were um, party schools. Released, they formed a cadre of the new Sinn Féin party everywhere it existed. Those who had been out (coughs) at Easter 1916 were now special people, the veterans of 1916 had unsteadily gained prestige as the fight over conscription developed and knitted with rebellion. Shauna Casey, in his memoirs, depicted the boys, quotes, the boys being given the last word, end quotes, 
as having a special place in every discussion. When the veterans pronounced, everyone else had to be silenced. Easter 1916 was called the Sinn Féin Rebellion. Sinn Féin was usually translated as ourselves alone, not we ourselves. And that gives it a different meaning, an enemy's meaning. The rising was not in fact a Sinn Féin enterprise. The Sinn Féin party was founded by Arthur Griffith in 1905. In 1907, it's merged with the Dungannon clubs, um, looking to what had happened between Hungary and Austria in 1867, Sinn Féin's founder, Arthur Griffith, had suggested in 1904 that the Irish MPs should secede from Westminster and set up an Irish parliament in Dublin, which would then recognise the king as also the king of Ireland. Griffith wanted to reorganise the centre of the empire as a British Hibernian dual monarchy. The idea was not new. Irish secession was suggested in Parnell's time, but Griffith, Griffith made it his own. The Sinn Féin party changed dramatically in 1917. Those who fought in 1916 and, uh, and those who, even if in retrospect, supported them, gathered at Sinn Féin's Ard phase in October 1917, adopted a policy in leadership changed from the old Sinn Féin and made it the party of 1916. Eamon de Valera, the only commander in the rising to survive, had been born in America and Britain was then courting the USA, was elected president of Sinn Féin with Arthur Griffith, who was not of the rising as his deputy. In policy, they were all Republicans, even former monarchists like Griffith, with his dual monarchy idea. The Republic formula was a strange compromise which stated that when they had won the Irish Republic, then the Irish people could decide whether they wanted a monarchy or a republic. Inside the GPO, after proclaiming the Republic in April 1916, Peirce had discussed the possibility of a German principal prince being installed as king of an independent island. For now, though, Sinn Féin wanted and had been declared and lost in 1916. The British thought the king alone embodied the whole empire. Until the statute, statute of Westminster in 1931, the British felt they could not cooperate on a compromise way to finesse the requirements that Irish members of Parliament would swear allegiance to the king. That issue then became the centre of dispute in Ireland about the treaty. People lamented the absence of a revolutionary party when they mean that the wrong revolutionary party was present. In Ireland in 1916-21, the IRB, its head centre, Michael Collins, thought the proclamation of 1916 a bit too socialistic. It would support the treaty. The IOB, the secret revolutionary party, was the secret of Collins' ability to do what he did. Lloyd George, Minister for War in 1916 and Prime Minister from December 1916, moving on to page 20, wanted to settle the 
home rule issue during the war in order to bring and keep the USA in alliance. In mid-June 1916, he essayed a deal with six counties excluded. They would continue to be governed directly from London. He told the Home Rule Party that the exclusion would be temporary. There was to be an imperial conference a year after the end of the war to reconsider it. The Home Rule uh, politician Joe Devlin got an Ulster Nationalist Conference, 23rd of June 1916, to back the scheme. At the same time, Lloyd George uh, reassured the Unionists that exclusion would be permanent. The Unionists wanted no home rule at all, no not partition. The scheme collapsed. In summer 1917, Lloyd George made another attempt, convening an Irish convention. The convention of appointed representatives included many home rule politicians elected to local governments before 1914 and was dominated by home rulers and unionists. Sinn Féin refused to take part. It sat from July 1917 to March 1918. No one proposed a partition. Eventually, a narrow majority proposed 32-county home rule, with customs and excise still controlled by Westminster. Additional representation for unionists in the Irish Parliament and an Ulster Committee with veto rights. Southern unionists and most of the home rulers backed it. The Ulster unionists stood out against any home rule. Facing obdurate opposition from the Ulster unionists and from Sinn Féin, Lloyd George quickly dropped the scheme. In late 1919, he came up with the Government of Ireland Bill 1920, two Home Rule Parliaments for six and 26 counties. The Ulster Unionists did not want a Belfast Parliament, but were persuaded. Lloyd George claimed that this act, the legal frame for partition, would provide a united Home Rule Ireland. There was to be a Council of Ireland, which never met, and an all-Ireland Parliament as soon as the Northern and Southern Parliaments agreed to it. The proposed Northern Parliament which the Ulster Unionists did not want, meant that all-Ireland home rule was now in Irish hands and required no British decisions as it would do with the six counties under direct rule. Quotes, With patience you will gradually work a union of the North and South, a union of Protestants and Catholic, a union of Britain with Ireland, in quotes from Commons, 31st of March, 1920. Hardly anyone believed that, but the bill passed in in December 1920 and provided the frame for the setting up, before even the bill had passed, of a government machine in Belfast and for elections in Ireland in May 1921. The six counties' elections set up Stormont, um, the 26 counties' election, in which no voting took place because of all candidates were unopposed, Produced the second Dale uh, Arian. Chapter 11 <coughs> The Six and Twenty Six Counties. In the 1930s, Marxists called Czechoslovakia imperialist because Czechs dominated Slovaks, Hungarians, Germans, Poland too, uh, because of Jewish, German, and Ukrainian minorities, Yugoslavia because Serbs dominated Croats, Kosovars, etc. 
imperialist in the sense that the Austro-Hungarian Empire had been. Over a, a half a century later, um, as Yugoslavia broke up, Serb chauvinism would provoke a series of bloody civil wars. The Orange State was a very small empire in Ireland. It was an empire as part of the British Empire, and from the start, the Catholic or nationalist uh, minority was homogenous, contiguous, and mostly along the border with the 26 counties. Religion, outlook, nationality, history, conception of themselves, preference on which of the two states they wanted to be in, all aligned them with the 26 counties. It is sometimes said that the Orange states grabbed those Catholic areas to get a more balanced and a more and viable agricultural and industrial state. That is not true. It is a rationalization. The British uh, and Orangists did it, and they must have had reasons, economic reasons, at the Marxists. In fact, it went on the principle of grabbing and holding as much as they could of the islands the Protestants had once ruled. The Orange Orangists talked um, of two nations, but they had meant two nations all over the island. They were part of and were backed by the British imperialists, the wise people who made the post-war settlement in Versailles and other post-war treaties whose results in Poland, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia were carve-ups which helped prepare the Second World War and its terrible aftermath, in which over 70, in which over 13 million ethnic Germans had been in Eastern Europe for centuries and millions of Poles, Ukrainians and others were deported. More than that, Edward Carson, the Dublin barrister, had spent most of his career even in the area of major reforms, fighting for the interests of landlords in Irish courts in which he had upheld repression. There is another reason. Carson and others used Ulster to describe the core territory they claimed, Antrim Down and County Londonderry, though not Derry City, which is two miles from the border with Donegal and the 26 counties, were heavily Protestant majority. The traditional province of Ulster covered nine counties. Nine would have given the Unionists a small and probably unstable majority. Four, as proposed by Maverick Liberal, in Parliament back in 1912, would have paired the partition line to near to the Protestant majority area. The choice of six counties made Catholics and nationalists a higher proportion, initially about a third of the people in the Marktorf area than all the Protestants were in all Ireland. The Protestant majority areas were entitled to separation from the rest of Ireland on the same principle as nationalist Ireland was from Britain. The six counties forcibly incorporated from the beginning one in three of its people and two counties, Fermanagh and Tyrone, and a major city, Derry, on the borders, which were against the nationalist state and for the nationalist and Catholic one. It put them at the mercy of a local Protestant parliament, only slightly supervised by Westminster. That was democratic nonsense. From the late 1960s, it led to revolts by the Catholics 
and by the IRA of the Northern Ireland community. The partition was false and artificial and produced terrible results north and south. Today, a hundred years after partition, more than half of the people of the six counties are anti-unionists, though not all of them necessarily want an immediate united island. The tw- 26 counties partition state, quotes, a carnival of reaction both north and south, which would set back the wheels of progress, would destroy the oncoming unity of the Irish labour movement and paralyse all advance movements while it endured, in quotes, from James Connolly on partition March 1914. The southern 26 counties were were sectarian and in a more purely sectarian religious way than Northern Ireland. There, Catholics were badly treated socially and eventually revolted in 1968-69. Ireland had the serious problem of one large minority, the Protestants, um, and then an an artificial minority in the six counties who were of the same people as the island majority. Partition, which supposedly solved Ireland's minority problem, in fact gave it a second artificial minority, the Catholics of the six counties. Partition was supposed to have been made rational with the Catholic areas transferred where practical to the Catholic state. That was eminently practical in nearly half of the six counties' lands area, Catholic majority and on the borders with the 26 counties. But there was no transfer. The transfer was to have been done by a 1924-25 boundary commission convened by Britain involving both the 26 and 6 counties in Britain. The 6 counties refused to take part. Britain appointed a representative for them. The commission recommended giving some tiny bits of land in the possession of the 26 counties to the northern states. The eventual deal was to shelve the commission report and instead, as compensation to the 26 counties, waive a debit, a debt of £157 million, which Britain claimed. Aon McNeil, the the Aon McNeil, was the uh, southern representative, and back in Dublin, his Irish opponents quoted him, claiming he got a better bargain. In 1925, the 26 counties started to make Catholic doctrine state legislation with a complete ban on divorce. For the Catholic 93% of the population, divorce was banned by their religion, a thing that should have been for them to choose, to practice or not. The ban made Catholic practice compulsory for Catholics and imposed it as law onto those whose religion allowed for divorce, some 3,700 Jews and 200,000 Protestants of different sorts. In the Senate, William Butler Yeats, speaking against the ban on divorce and, and about those thus forbidden to divorce and locked into Catholic doctrine they had not chosen and would not choose, cited words attributed to Elizabeth I, confronting the Spanish Armada, um, quotes, we are no petty people, in quotes, meaning those in Ireland who did not, on religious principle, oppose divorce. 
it was a symbolic stand by the romantic, romantic elitist, the greatest maker of myths about 1916. Once before Yeats had fought Catholic sectarianism, standing with the Labour movement in the Dublin Labour War of 1913-14, when they faced the mobs and the thugs of the Catholic Orange Order, the AOH, he wrote on sectarianism in Dublin and by implication of Catholic sectarianism in Ireland, dominant in parts of the country, for people who did not need to be told about Orange sectarianism. In 1925, he stood against the tide of Irish Catholic history as it was again, as it was gaining force and power and turning into the priest's social rule, Rome rule. Towards 1968, a u- unique confluence of events led the nationalist minority in the northern state to revolt. Uh, page 21. Any of the southern leaders would gladly have taken Femene and Ty- Tyrone, but Collins spoke for the new state in trying to shape the new island. He had no illusions that the Boundary Commission in 1925 would rectify the border. There was no mass movement of the Catholics and nationalists in the six counties for a half a century. The Home Rule Party survived in Northern Ireland until 1970, when as the Nationalist Party, it was one of the founders of the Social Democratic and Labour Party, the SDLP. 35 years after partition, an IRA war on the Northern Ireland state was launched by the IRA. They split from the IRA, the Christie Group and Sjur Eldor in November and December 1956. It followed a number of raids for guns on northern police and British military barracks, in which some Republicans were caught and jailed. What was remarkable was the passivity of the Northern Ireland Catholics. The raids were raids from the 26 counties, and they had a character of being raids by Catholic Ireland on heretical uh, Protestant Ireland. Also remarkable was the effect of the border campaign in the south. Sinn Féin won four abstentionist seats in the Dale. After the death of Sinn Sinn, Sinn South, a clerical fascist, in a raid into the north, his coffin coffin made a triumphal journey home to Limerick. Dominic Behan wrote two songs about him, one of which, a vainglorious war song, Sean South of Gary Owen, became very popular in Catholic Ireland. Behin also wrote a much more thoughtful, more reflective song about nationalism, about a boy who died with South, Fergil O'Hanlon, that was both true and gave a basis and tune for Bob Dylan's border with God on our side. 35 years after a separatist government took control in Dublin, the IRA still gripped the imagination of Catholic and nationalist Ireland. The military campaign was formally ended in 1962. It revived quickly in the years after 1968. The South, its politicians, media, social, school history and, and church was saturated by sentimental anti-partitionism. 
This was the time when the 26 counties with a population of 3 million hemorrhaged about 50,000 a year, mainly to Britain. In the highest year, 1958, it was 80,000. Page 12, The Long War. In the ninth, uh, not page 12, chapter 12, <laughs> The Long War. Um, in the 1960s, the Communist Party gained control in the rump Republican uh, movements. It backed a, a civil rights movement amongst nationalists in the six counties where they did lack civil rights. Nationalists marching and drilling, demanding the civil rights and equality they lacked because of partition and the rule of an uneasy Protestant majority. The logic of civil rights was to raise the national question and that was intended by the Communist Party and the Connolly Association. One new factor was the massive British and worldwide publicity and support given to the Northern Irish minority when the cameras captured a peaceful Catholic civil rights march with the April 5th of October 1968 being battened by the RUC. Such things had been done against civil rights activists in the southern states of the USA. Northern Ireland was destabilised. The student movement erupted. People's democracy, it was linked to the British IS, which has evolved in the SWP of today. People's uh, democracy were half-aware nationalists with a patina of international leftism. Michael Farrell's Struggle in the North, 1970, published by what was then the ISSWP publisher, Pluto Press, advocated a Valera-style autarky for an all-island state on the Cuban model. But that implied re uh, it joining an international network such as Cuba did. It implied Stalinism. Its policy was ultra-left and with a vengeance. They thought provocation made sense because the main enemy was the Unionists who wanted to reform Northern Ireland, um, Prime Minister O'Neill and his supporters. They were successful when a PD march backed by the Stalinist Republican movements, later the Workers' Party, marched through the Protestants' heartlands, was attacked. The attack got great publicity, but in terms of Catholic-Protestant relations, it was very costly. The P PD tactics only made sense if there was a power to appeal to when they detonated the Protestant ultras, as uh, the US was and would be for the black civil rights movement against the racists there. For Northern Ireland, that was the British government. That ultimately was direct rule, and that too ultimately was the provisional IRA. In August 1969, Derry was engulfed by Protestant and Catholic fighting. After four days of fighting, the British army took over. The fighting spread to Belfast and eventually to stop the fighting, the PD leaders in Belfast and in Derry followed the logic of their politics and called for British troops, thus taking responsibility for British government activity in Northern Ireland. The British soldiers would remain on the streets, keeping the six county states more or less intact for 38 years, from 1969 until, to, until 2007. 
the IRA splits in December 1969. The Stalinist official IRA was the rump. The gun and the bomb came back to Irish politics spectacularly. The Protestant legal militia, the Ultra Defence Association, became a mass movement, killing Catholics at random to keep the unviable six county states they had aligned with the British government, which, after granting the Catholics all the civil rights they demand, settled in to slug it out with the IRA, which had re-emerged on the fringes of the civil rights movement. Disbanding of Stormont After the disbanding of the Northern Ireland Parliament in March 1972, the question was posed very sharply. What were the provisional IRA now for? What were they fighting for? The Irish question had been posed differently to the different generations. What was it now? What did the armed Republicans in the North now propose? The existing national culture of a story and song and ethnic sectarian history allowed militant nationalists, the IRA, to set themselves and the gun in Irish politics. This transformed part of the civil rights movement, all of which, all of whose demands were won after August 1969, into the armed revolt of the provisional IRA launched early in 1971. In August 1971, the revolt was augmented by internment. In fact, it was internment of nationalists and Catholics only, the lists being made up by the Belfast sectarian government of Brian Faulkner. For a year, <coughs> the provisionals fought the first stage in the war with a new ferocity. Using a car bomb, they blew the heart, of the heart out of the northern towns, including the two cities of Belfast where there was a solid Protestant and Unionist majority, and Derry, where there was a bigger Catholic and Nationalist majority, Derry mandated out of its say in local government. There was a powerful Protestant-Unionist backlash in the north. The British army got out of control and killed 13, soon 14, unnamed demonstrators in one go in Derry. But there was still some give, for Britain in the Northern Ireland system. Almost a year into the First Provo War, Britain took self-government in their own sub-state away from the Protestants' Unionist six counties. They abolished the Belfast Parliament. Before the First World War, the Protestant Unionists had won a veto on an all-Ireland majority home rule. Now the six-county Catholics won a veto over six counties' Protestant home rule. It was a victory for the provisional IRA, but a limited and purely negative victory. What would replace Stormont? A united Ireland, said the provisional IRA. Catholic Protestant power sharing in the six counties, said the British, who had the power. The provisional's war resumed after a ceasefire following the abolition of Stormont and became plain that the British were not going to force the Protestants into some form of united Ireland or try to do that. A fit of generosity in 1972-73, and in recognition of the need to accommodate the Protestants, the Provisionals came out for Federal Ireland on the basis of four provinces, each with a Parliament and a measure of self-rule.
the traditional province of Ulster with nine counties with at best a slender and unstable Protestant majority. The early provisional leaders were political naifs, a right-wing reaction to Stalinism in the IRA. Some of them were platonic social democrats at best, um, Rory O'Brady perhaps. They believed their own propaganda that Northern Ireland was British-occupied Ireland. It was nonsense, but they believed their own nonsense. The best encapsulation of it I encountered put the situation in like this. We are all anti-imperialists. Many of us are socialists of some sort. Where others agonized about the complexities and difficulties, the provisionals came along, pointed at the British soldier on the corner with his gun and shouted, that's imperialism, shoot him. It was a policy and it pointed to the British army and the British as the old enemy and the enemy now. They were the enemy and the markers of martyrs in the songs and stories that nurtured the provisionals. The British had taken control in Northern Ireland, pushing aside the control of the orange sectarians. They had begun to do that in August 1969 and continued by their de facto direct rule thereafter and clenched it in March 1972 with the abolition of, by Britain, of Protestant rule in the six counties and a substitution for it of British direct rule and the quest for decades thereafter for Catholic Protestant power sharing. The six counties had been designed for one community rule, a Protestant rule, uh, transplanting power sharing into the gerrymandered state proved um, uh, impossible for decades. It was easy on paper, impossible in reality. They didn't manage, manage it for a very long time, 24 years, and even now it is unstable. The Protestants reacted to the Provisionals' War in 1971 with an attempt at a general strike and a march demanding... Um, in turnment, there were strikes and a march where Stormont was abolished, page 22. Some orange bosses saw and said that the true meaning or logic of the civil rights demands was towards a united Ireland. Broadly, that diagnosis was accepted by most of the Protestant Orange Northern Ireland's Ian Paisley ran an independent ultra-Protestant fringe, opposition to any change as a sellout to Rome Catholicism. He and his obsession was seen as an archaic, lunatic figure in Britain. He preached a seeming space species of class distrust and class struggle against the Orange Establishment, the relatively progressive reformist Orange Establishment, Every move they made towards reform or placating the Catholic minority was denounced as a pandering to Rome and a united Ireland. Paisley was an evil bigot, but a number of Protestants were listening to Paisley and an increasing number began to see and interpret things as Paisley did. Power sharing. In spring 1973, the British government set up a new uh, Northern Ireland Assembly, which it hoped would allow Catholic Protestant power sharing by way of a rule that, uh, quotes, an executive can no longer be solely based upon any single party. 
end quotes. The assembly was elected in on 28th of June 1973, and it lasted until 29th of May 1974. On 21st, 21st of November, under British pressure, a coalition executive was formed from it, led by Brian Faulkner's faction of the Unionists and by the Social Democratic and Labour Party, SDLP, formed in 1970 as a constitutional uh, nationalist party from the old Nationalist Party and Labour fragments. In May, in January 1974, that executive started operating in Belfast, in Stormont, the old seat of Protestant rule, but now working Britain's new policy of power sharing. Its Prime Minister was Brian Faulkner, who had been Prime Minister in the new, now superseded Northern Ireland's regime from March 1971 to March 1972, and architect of the internment policy of of Catholics only from August 1971, which had made the provisional IRA a major force in Northern Ireland. Faulkner had not opposed the British White Paper of March 1973, and in the June 1973 election, he said he had said he would never share power with anyone whose objectives was to break the union, but now he had joined a coalition with the SDLP. Much of the Unionist Party split away, and the strength of his government now was the SDLP. The Stormont majority for the executive held, despite uproar, including fistfights in the chamber. Then a minor strike led the UK government under Heath to call a UK general election in February 1974. Of the 12 six counties MPs elected then, 11 were hardline opponents of power sharing. Faulkner tried to soldier on, but his government had lost all moral authority. A general strike called by an Ulster Workers' Council 12th to 29th of May 1974, brought down the executive. The Prime Minister in London, Harold Wilson, was reduced to um, ferning at the fuming, fuming at the strikers and hurling abuse at them. The strike was initially spread by paramilitary intimidation, but it quickly turned into a real general strike, one of the most powerful and successful in history. To say the British government stands up to it enough, that is the typical right-wing response to any strike. After the fall of the six-county power-sharing executive, a Northern Ireland's constitutional convention was held for about a year, from May 1975 to March 1976. The IRA was on ceasefire for that time. The convention led to nothing, and the IRA restarted the war. There was talk now of a 20 years war, what could be the objectives of the bombing and killings unleashed? There had been many hundreds of killings of random Catholics by Protestants paramilitaries. Did the provisionals propose forcible incorporation of the Protestants in a united island? They evaded that conclusion, though it was vaguely implied. They knew they could not do it. They said they wanted the British to become persuaders of the Irish Protestants to go into a united Ireland. In other words, they had a British and not an Irish policy. 
That is why they could not go on bombing and killing Irish Protestants while still saying they wanted unity with them. The persuasion they wanted from Britain was not verbal. There had been no shortage of British advice unheeded. They wanted to coerce Britain into coercing the Northern Ireland Protestants into United Ireland. That was their policy in the long war. It made no sense. It is hard to believe that the provisional IRA leaders themselves believed it, though many heroic activists of the IRA died pursuing it. In the end, the provisionals declared a ceasefire in 1994 and eventually agreed to and worked the power-sharing deal in the Good Friday Agreement of April 1998. There were some differences in the agreements compared to the power-sharing of 1973, the later system included the extremes on both sides as First Minister and Deputy First Minister, in fact, co-equal in powers, whereas the early ones were, was geared to a coalition of the moderates with a single Prime Minister. But in essence, the power sharing they accepted in 1998 and after was on offer to them from 1973. The war led to different personnel in governments, but was it worth fighting a long and terrible war? So that's Martin McGuinness, former of Chief of Staff of the IRA, could become Deputy First Minister with Ian Paisley as First Minister. The Provisionals The simple nationalist all-island idea, the island is the nation, that was the understanding and policy of the provisional IRA when it started what would last as a shooting and bombing war for 23 years. It recruited people politically roused for Catholic civil rights on both sides of the border by the plights of the Catholics in the six counties. The picture they saw was true and also not true, that it was the militia of the civil rights movements of the six counties, Catholics. They brought their own simple nationalist ideas. They were able to use the songs and stories from all over nationalist Ireland. What did Ireland lack? Unity with a Catholic majority. It was one island, and that was the nation. The claim of the 26 counties' government to all Ireland rule was natural. Geography and ancient myth were current politics. But it was the they, the people, that mattered not it, the island. The war the provost started in early 1971 was the continuation of the IRA wars started in 1956 and 1916 and insurgencies back through the centuries. Some of the IRA leaders had defected to Stalinism in 1969 or earlier to collapse with the Workers' Party, which collapsed in 1991, when, with the fall of the USSR, it was revealed that they had no money. They had money from that source. The Provo leaders, um, Stevenson, O'Brady, O'Connell, had been out in 1956 and had been jailed. They did not go with those who went Stalinist, Golding, Garland, McGill. Within a year, the Provisionals won their only victory, the abolition of Stormont. They gained a veto over Protestants, having home rule in the six counties, uh, balancing the British, the protests, Protestant veto on an all-island um, state. They went on ceasefire when Stormont fell in March 1972. The official IRA did too, 
and then ceased fire for good, um, though they still exist secretly. The United Irishmen in the issue after the fighting in 1969 in the British Army deployment in Ireland had on its front page, Blame England. It summed up republicanism then, the future provisional IRA too. The Stalinist-led section would soon move on. The provisionals took a lot longer. The Protestants had an Ulster Defence Association from 1971, a legal militia claiming 30,000 members. The Protestant population of the six counties was about a million. Bloody Sunday, 33rd of January 1972, a massacre by the army of demonstrators in Derry led Britain to abolish Stormont and seek a Catholic Protestant's inclusive solution. For Britain, all solutions started with the existing six counties substates as given. Solutions had to be within that state. The British would spend decades defending partition and trying to graft uh, dual power. Catholic Protestant power sharing onto an artificial state gerrymandered to serve Protestants' hegemony. They are still doing it. The provisional IRA fought a number of wars between 1971 and 1994 when the wars in the six counties ceased. The last IRA militia action in Britain was in 1997 when they demolished part of central Manchester. They won their own and only victory when Britain abolished the Belfast's parliament in March 1972. That might have been a prelude to a British United uh, Ireland policy if six counties Protestants did not exist, or if they could be and should be ignored. From the end of Stormont in uh, March 1972 uh, to the end of uh, 1976, there was movements on and in the six counties. The Catholics won a veto over Protestant rule in the six counties, from now on, it would be a power sharing between Protestant and Catholic or British direct rule in the six counties. The Protestant state for Protestant people as Brooker Borough, one of the five Northern Ireland Prime Ministers once put it, page 23, um, it could not be that. But the six counties entity, which had its borders drawn to give Protestants a majority over Catholics, could never again be that. Britain took over from Protestant majority rule responsibility for maintaining the six counties whose artificiality was shown by the Provisionals' War. There was an interlude between the abolition of Protestant rule in March 1972 and the end of the Northern Ireland's Constitutional Convention in March 1976. In 1971, the Provisionals adopted Ian Noah a policy of Ireland as a federation of four provinces, Munster, Connaught, Leinster and Ulster, Ulster being nine counties, three more than the, the current Northern Ireland's sub-state of six. On one level of provisionals, IRA newer policy of 1971 was nonsense. The Protestants would have been an unstable majority in nine counties, Ulster, and be far more insecurity, insecure than in six counties. As before, in 1914, Catholics, James Connolly, for instance, 
had looked to Britain to coerce a recalcitrant Protestant population, so too again. <coughs> However, it was possible to hope or convince oneself to hope that Ayara Nua could be the start of a process of negotiation that would lead to the Protestant area areas having some sort of autonomy in a negotiated United Ireland. No longer so after 1981 when the Provisionals officially revoked federalism. More recently, today's parliamentarist Sinn Féin has shifted back. <coughs> As Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou MacDonald put it, quotes, British identity <coughs> can and must be accommodated in a united Ireland, and I believe nationalist Ireland is open to constitutional and political safeguards to ensure this, in quotes. Page 23, <coughs> um, Chapter 13, Socialism, Nationalism and Connolly. The failure of the revolutionary socialist communists left in Ireland to create aggregate forms of revolutionary politics provided the framework and background within which the archaic republican definition of revolutionary politics by physical force methods remained dominant for decades. For example, if the Communist Party which became a powerful force in industrial Northern Ireland in the 1930s and 40s, and later held on to some of the influence one then, had been a real Marxist party and not the Stalinist sub-reformist ab abomination that it was, then there would have been uh, no political and social space for the IRA to revive in the 1970s. The Marxist organisation would have built on the existing trade union level working class unity to create a cross-community revolutionary party. That party would, over the years, have systematically agitated on all the grievances of the workers of both communities. It would have educated sizable sections, at least of, of both communities in a socialist internationalist outlook. The advanced working-class movements of both Protestants and Catholics would have continuously, continually exposed, denounced and campaigned against all the practices, political and social, which for 50 years made Northern Ireland's Catholics second-class citizens, discriminated against in jobs, social housing and civil and political rights. It would have openly campaigned against a partition that made <coughs> no democratic sense, but in a democratic and internationalist spirit, and not in one that mimicked middle-class Catholic Irish nationalism. In that spirit, it would have educated Catholic workers to understand the concerns of Protestant workers and their honest fear of Rome, Rome rule, and to despise and oppose the social role of the Catholic clergy in the North as well as the South. It was the Catholic Church in the North which insisted on separate Catholic schools, determined that education in the North should be along rigidly sectarian lines. It would have educated the Protestant workers against the obscenity of ranting orange sectarian bigots claiming as theirs the tradition of liberty and freedom from clerical oppression. It would have taught them a sympathetic understanding of the nationalists' uh, outlook, which centuries of oppression had ingrained in Irish Catholics. It would have educated both um, communities to approach the question of minority and majority relationships 
on the island and the relationship in the six counties of the Protestants, the Irish um, island minority but local majority, and the artificially created northern Catholic minority in a radically democratic Leninist spirit. It would have been guided in this by the approach outlined in the 1913 resolution of the Bolshevik Central Committee, quotes, in so far as any national peace is in any way possible in a capitalist society based on exploitation, profit-making and strife, it is attainable only under a consistently and thoroughly democratic republican system of government, the constitution of which contains a fundamental law that prohibits any privileges whatsoever to any one nation and any encroachment whatsoever upon the right of a national minority. This particularly calls for a wide regional autonomy and full democratic self-government with the boundaries of the self-governing and autonomous regions determined by the local inhabitants themselves on the basis of their economic and social conditions, national makeup of the population, etc. Such a party would have been able to influence and recruit from the workers in the cities and towns of, main, of mainly agricultural southern islands. A working class movement so constituted would have been able to influence the very poor working farmers of the west of Ireland. It would have educated the working class of Ireland, north and south, in a positive socialist outlook of counterposed, counterposed to the ruling class north and south, and enthused workers to fight for socialism. It would have had fraternal links and organisational ties with a similar movement in Britain, as in their times the United Irishmen and Fenians had. Such an Irish Marxist movement would have exerted great influence of workers in the Irish diaspora around the world and through them drawn courage and confidence from the workers' movements around the world. In short, it would have worked to achieve the prospects James Connolly described in the conclusion to his book Labour in Irish History, 1910, referring back to the United um, Irishmen and forward to a future we have yet to win. The North uh, quotes the the North and South will again clasp hands. Again, it will be demonstrated, as in ninety eight, that the pressure of a common exploitation can make enthusiastic rebels out of a Protestant working class, earnest champions of civil and religious liberty out of Catholics, and out of both a united social democracy. In quotes, Connolly, <coughs> in that perspective. How must we judge Connolly's written legacy? Sean O'Casey, the future dramatist, a Protestant worker of Dublin, was the first secretary of the Irish Citizen Army during the Great Dublin Strike and lockout of 1913 to 14. In 1919, after the rising, he published a small book, The Story of the Irish Citizen Army. In it, he disputes the idea that Connolly was Ireland's first or any socialist martyr. In Connolly, Casey insisted Ireland had yet another nationalist master. O- o- Casey um, had left the citizen army in 
July 1914 as it became predominantly nationalist and began to merge its political identity with the Irish volunteers. It became distinguished um, at most by militancy and irreconcilability. The specific issue he broke on was that Constance Markievicz, a member of the Citizen Army, was allowed to hold dual membership also in Irish volunteers. There is no doubt that in James Connolly, Irish nationalism gains for its pantheon a saint and a martyr. Did Ireland gain a socialist martyr of any sort or was O'Casey right? From the article in Irish Worker of 29th of August 1914, The War Against the German Nation, Connolly was a soldier in the German propaganda war, justifying what Germany did in Belgium, including the German war atrocity at Louvain. For the month of August, he had advocated what the Socialist International had advocated before the war. At the Basel Conference on War in 1912, uh, for example, among the things he wrote in that month of August 1914 was a polemic against the IRB, whose doctrine was to back any power at war with Britain. Um, Our duty in this crisis, Irish worker, 8th of August 1914. He made fun of their automatic support of the uh, German war lord. Then he changed and himself did what he had made fun of the IRB for doing. Connolly and his comrades in August opposed all imperialism, refusing support to any imperialism because they all did the same, more or less. And if you took one side's part because of its imperialist deeds of its rival, you could only do that by endorsing or condoning tacitly or explicitly the similar deeds of the first side. Then Connolly explicitly endorsed Germany in Belgium. On 29th of August 1914, Connolly publicly self-dwindled from being anti-imperialist against all imperialism, including Germany's imperialism and Germany's war, and became just anti-English against England's war for Germany's. Of course, Connolly knew better and publicly drew the political conclusions of that knowledge before 29th of August 1914. Then he switched the politics he had mocked or of half-knowledge. It has to be one of those of the t- of two things. Either Connolly, like others who have shifting opinions, dropped one opinion when he picked up a different one, or Connolly's opinions are laid out side by side and the commentator can cite as equally valid, for example, residing with Karl Liebknecht in the first month, and his siding with Liebknecht's um, enemies, the dominant right wing of German social democracy, for the rest of his life. Like everyone, Connolly's politics evolved. Mostly he dropped one thing when he took up its opposite. The older articles still exist as articles, and may even be used to refute the new opinion, but you can't put together one opinion with its opposite and present the combination as one position or claim that that both opinions were equally valid. But if the positions differ on the same subjects, they are different. Reasons for changed opinions may be perfectly valid. Circumstances change. We recognize errors. But such things have to be shown 
or where they are shown indicated. Connolly has been treated as if uh, if there is no sequence, as if he was right to back Karl Liebknecht in August and equally right to adopt um, at the end of August, page 24, the politics on the war of Liebknecht's mortal enemies, as if his pronouncements when b- being anti-English only were against all imperialism and his comments against England's war were anti-war. Not so if simultaneously he was for German imperialism and Germany's war. Connolly as a socialist is an attractive character. He tried to live his politics and who nowadays um, but an extreme reactionary would object to the things which Connolly like Larkin tried to win for uh, and with the Irish and all workers. People who did not themselves have to wage Connolly's struggle for literacy are uneasy uh, criticising Connolly. Connolly's position in the Irish nationalist pantheon protects him from socialist and Marxist reporting, let alone criticism. To be able to cite and claim Connolly is seriously valuable, of course it is, but an uncritical attitude has consequences that are not good. Connolly wrote well on physical forcism in Irish politics. He wrote against the political and moral idiocy of a political siding with whatever power opposed England. He wrote against imperialism, including German imperialism, but then he espoused the things he condemned. The main consequences of uh, uncritical admiration of Connolly in the broad labour movement is the acceptance of the methods of physical force nationalism. Many who are socialists have gone to republicanism or socialist republicanism. How many have taken the other route from nationalism and republicanism to socialism? Workers' Fights, a predecessor of Solidarity, wrote about Connolly in the centenary of his birth. Quotes, When it comes to the rising, the main forces commanded by the rump nationalists, the majority were supporting the British Empire, were called off at the last moment. The citizen army was left to play a major part. We are going out to be slaughtered, Connolly muttered on the steps of Liberty Hall on Easter Monday. But he knew that this would be less disastrous than another of the missed opportunities and botched risings which were scattered through Irish history and which he himself had chronicled so bitterly in his book Labour in Irish History. At Liberty Hall, before the march to the GPO, Connolly is supposed to have said to the trade union leader William O'Brien, In the event of victory, Hold on to your guns, as those with whom we are fighting may stop before our goal is reached. We are uh, for economic as well as political liberty, end quotes. That had been used to show that Connolly had objectives larger than the rising. It has been disputed whether he actually said it. More important, it was just what Connolly would say to such as William O'Brien, an old socialist comrade, and what a phenomenal understatement it was that, quotes, those with whom we are fighting may stop before our goal is reached, end quotes. Almost everyone in the rising was against socialism, and they were they would show that in deeds when many of them came to power in the 26 counties. 
what was Connolly doing in the GPO or in the rising in the centre of the IRB to which he was co-opted in January 1916. Writing for effect. Connolly was a rebel, first of all. He was, it seems, wholehearted, wholehearted about nationalism. Connolly wanted a workers' republic. But by 1916, perhaps from when he left the, the Leonites in 1907-8, Connolly was a politician in the bad sense. He wrote this, 30th of January 1908, in his Catholicism, on his Catholicism, to his friend John Castus Matheson, quotes, For myself, though I have usually proposed as a Catholic, I have not gone to my duty for fifteen years, and have not the slightest tincture of faith left. I only assumed the Catholic pose in order to query the raw freethinker, end quotes. Whether he was lying in the letter to Matheson, or had been lying all, lying all the years he had given it out, or let it be inferred that he was a Catholic, Connolly publicly accepted and deliberately let it be known that he was a Catholic. He was a Catholic in 1916 anyway. Connolly believed in the class struggle and as something to be fought on the worker's side. He believed in a cause and effect, more or less materialist conception of history, and he also believed in a supranature and an afterlife. All the prominent leaders in 1916 except Tom Clark were fervent Catholics, and Connolly at the end a proselytising one. They all except maybe Clark believed that after the stonebreaker's yard at Kilmanheim and the firing squad um, would become a glorious afterlife. As Connolly's dispute with de Leon showed also, Connolly did not have a typical socialist view of the family. He had a Catholic view. The evidence from from Pierce and from Connolly himself is that he rejected the then prevailing socialist idea of an obligation to truth, the idea that you tell the truth if for no better reason than because you want the workers who listen to you to understand reality as it really is, and you cannot help them do that unless you tell the truth. You tell the truth because you want workers to learn to know and analyse reality for themselves. Connolly came to say what he thought would get the effect he wanted. It didn't matter if it was true or not. He came to a manipulative rather than a truth-oriented view as a guide to what he said. That is, that it is very hard to know for sure what he thought and believed, but we know what he did, and he died fighting English imperialism. The, take two examples of Connolly writing for effect, what he cannot have believed to be the truth. The idea that the bourgeoisie would not destroy capitalist towns or buildings is often attributed to Connolly. I traced it to uh, a pamphlet published in Dublin in 1917 by someone I had not heard of. Then I read it in Desmond Ryan, who was in the GPO and Pierce's secretary during the rising. I had to believe it, but it is the fool's argument, and Connolly was no one's fool. So Connolly did use that essentially silly argument. He may have used it to placate to jolly people along. 
Possibly, we know Connolly to have jollied people along. Many times Connolly wrote to claim that Catholic workers were not only more revolutionary but also more tolerant than Protestant workers. There was no fear that human rule would be Rome rule. He had in mind a 32-county state, but can he have believed what he wrote as distinct from finding it useful? He had experienced hooligan priests and the Catholic Orange Order, the AOH, as strike breakers in the Dublin Labour War. Can he have believed that there was no threat of Rome rule? He had experience of the rule that non-Catholics could only marry in church with Catholic spouses if they solemnly, solemnly promised to raise their children as Catholics. He and his Protestant wife, Lily, had experienced it when they married in church. Priests controlled Catholic schools, and it was they who insisted on re- religious segregation of schooling. Priests told Catholics that they could be, not be socialists, where and when they could. They set up Catholic schools. There was already intolerance where the priests had contacts, had control. And Connolly knew how the game was played. He wrote an obsequious open letter to Archbishop Walsh of Dublin towards the end of the workers' fight in 1913-14, admitting all the pretensions of Walsh. Dora Montefiore, a socialist who had come to help the children of strike-bound Dublin, had reported that Walsh, quotes, has the insolence to suggest to three women delegates from the workers of Great Britain that he is not certain whether the sinister rumours have not a substratum of truth. Rumours set out um, per- about set about purposely by priests and Hibernians that we three women were agents of the white slave traffic, end quotes, recruiters of prostitutes. Yet Connolly professed confidence that, quotes, His Grace will assuredly see that in his diocese the garb of a priest is not made a shield for the acts and language of a scoundrel. End quotes. <clears throat> a filched inheritance. The description of the rising is a terrible beauty being born, as a terrible beauty being born came to be words that described the Irish bourgeoisie's myth of its own origins and uh, legacy. The the island that uh, took shape after the English left the 26 counties in 1922, the Pope's part of the Green Island that became a a Catholic theocracy, new self-rule as Rome rule, it was the islands of mass unemployment and mass migration, and as much economic isolation as possible. The islands which lived by exporting meat, cattle and workers, the islands of the peasant economy, and even of the present proper integration in European um, economy. That priest-bourgeois republic was a grim mockery of the protracted and pitched battles of the Irish working people. That had gone before. This is uh, this is a filched bourgeois inheritance. Quotes. Um, oh, right, no, Yeats, Yeats September nineteen thirteen was nearer the truth. Quotes. What needs you being 
being come to sense, but fumble in a greasy till, and adds the half halfpence to the pence, and's prayer to shivering prayer, until you have dried the marrow from the bone. For men were born to pray and save, for whom the hangman's rope was spun, and what, God help us, could they save? Romantic island, dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave, in all their loneliness and pain, but let them be, they're dead and gone, they're with O'Leary in the grave. End quotes. 